VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, December the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the second last show of 2022, so we're looking forward to speaking with you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So the kids are out of school. K-12 system shut down for the holidays. Three more sleeps till Christmas. Four more sleeps until the World Juniors kick off. Canada plays the Czechs on December 26th. And, of course, Zach Dean from Mount Pearl lacing them up for the Maple Leaf. So looking forward to that. Even though, you know, I would imagine there's many people torn and completely browned off with Hockey Canada. I mean, there's two investigations that are still ongoing. One about some of the members of the 2003 team, the 2018 team. I suppose just like we tuned into the Soccer World Cup with all the issues surrounding the host uh, country of Qatar, I wonder how many people will be following along this holiday season. New Brunswick, the province of and the government of New Brunswick, they've got their worry antennas up sharp. They actually have a contract with Hockey Canada that says inside their spending of $1.25 million to co-host the World Juniors this go-around, their contract ensures, and here's some of the quotes, the tournament must be of good character and must not indulge in unethical conduct, illegal conduct, or acts or permit unethical conduct, illegal conduct, or any acts by anyone under its jurisdiction that might be reasonably interpreted as tarnishing the reputation of the Regional Development Corporation or the Government of New Brunswick. So they're protecting themselves legally through a contract with Hockey Canada. How far that organization has devolved. Boy, that's really terrible. A couple of quickie in the hockey notes. To this date in 1990, the great Paul Coffey, who gets left out of some of the conversations surrounding those great Edmonton Oilers teams and greats of all time. So it was today, or this date in 1990, Paul Coffey became the second defenseman to record uh, 1,000 points and took only 770 games. There's still only eight NHL defensemen in history that have scored 1,000 points. Notably, the great Bobby Orr, of course, he finishes injury-played career with 915 points in only 657 games. The high-scoring active defenseman, Brett Burns. He's now currently playing in Carolina. He's got 799 in over 1,280 games. So there you go. And it was this date in 1996 that terrific goal scorer Brett Hull recorded his 26th hat-trick to become the first father-son duo to score 500-plus goals in the NHL, of course, with Dad Bobby. All right, just keep going. Also, an interesting one, 1971, we talk a lot about doctors. It was today in 1971, or this date, someone's been taking me to task on my verbiage there, but this date, 1971, Doctors Without Borders was created. Founded by a fellow named Bernard Kutcher, Kutchner and a bunch of journalists, their first active mission was to Afghanistan in 1980. In 1999, they actually were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So, 1971, Doctors Without Borders. And on this date, hitting the silver screen, The Graduate debuted on American theater screens in this day, 1967. Let's keep going. I don't know what possesses people to do a lot of things, but these stories are absolutely ridiculous. And this is about yet another person working in a healthcare setting with fake credentials. Like, what goes on? Bizarre. This woman named Lisa Driscoll, she pretended she was a registered nurse. She did indeed at one time train as a practical nurse, but does not hold an RN license. She worked 25 shifts at the Lakeside Nursing Home in Gander. 
between August 19th and November the 7th of this year. Apparently, she has pulled this stunt. She was flagged in the province of Ontario. She went through a vetting process uh, held by Solution Staffing, Inc., and they verified Driscoll's license as in error. Well, for starters, that's not good enough. And, you know, it just goes to speak to the fact that there are so many disjointed databases with provincial jurisdiction ruling the roost in healthcare. But I don't even know why someone would think it's a good idea to fake up credentials to work in a healthcare setting. Now, apparently, nothing untoward happened insofar as patient care goes, but she was identified with a couple of lapses in whatever was going on at the Lakeside Homes. But remember, it's not that long ago that Christopher Power from this province, he was hired to work out at the Bay of Roberts Retirement Home with fake nursing credentials, caught in the act of sexually assaulting one of the residents, sentenced to 16 months for said assault in February, and also a couple of years probation. So the health authorities say they've now got processes in place to ensure this doesn't happen again. It should never happen in the first place. Imagine, I'm going to fake up my nursing credentials and work in such a sensitive area with very vulnerable people. Boy, oh boy, just don't get that one at all. And then, of course, inside the world of healthcare, hearing from families in both Gander and in Happy Valley Goose Bay with the obstetrics diversions that are going to be happening. You know, once again, the distance between Gander and Grand Falls Windsor, manageable, not ideal, I understand, with the families in Gander, what they think about it. Happy Valley Goose Bay, maybe about upwards of a seven-hour trip. And all the complicated pregnancies that may be part of the 6 out of 10 families impacted in that area. But we can take that on if you're so inclined. And of course, paramedics who may indeed have delivered many babies in the past. They're poised to strike. This one has been ongoing for quite some time. They've been negotiating a new collective agreement with the fewer group of ambulances since February. There are seven different emergency service operators included in this group. Including Fairland, Trapassi, Chance, Gambo, Clarenville. They haven't heard from Fewer in quite a while. So we've spoke to Hubert Daw, the Teamsters Local 855 in the past. This impacts some 100 paramedics. So for Mr. Fewer, Bob Fewer, probably time to get back to the table and try to get this settled and solved. The province is also dragging its feet when it comes to working out what the landscape for paramedics and ambulance operators will look like uh, in the province for years to come. We've been talking about this for years and very little to no detail about where we are. The disparity between the public and private offerings, the amount of money paid, the on-call, the stress, the burnout, the paramedics who are leaving the province, and now potentially a strike in the offing. Five of the companies voted 100% in favor of a strike. The other two voted with over 75% in favor of job action as well. So maybe, Mr. Doff, you'd like to give us an update or make a plea here on the show. To get back to the table, we're happy to take that on. And talk about delivering babies. This is a great story. There was no maternity leave for elected officials in the city of Mount Pearl until, uh, what's the lady's name, Chelsea Lane, she's currently city councilor Mount Pearl, became the first woman to have a baby while on city council. Now, so welcome to young Max, who's only a few weeks old. She has another child as well, two-year-old Serena. So when they decided to discuss maternity leave, lo and behold, there was no such plan for Mount Pearl city councilors. So now they're working towards it, and that's a good step. And Miss Lane will indeed at times be bringing young Max into chambers. Remember the uproar in some corners when Minister Sarah Studley brought her child into the legislature. And you now people say it's inappropriate and you can't get the job done. But let's just take that a step further. How many people with one, two, three children at home running around their feet were working from home 
for extended amounts of time, months, and in some cases, years on end, given what the pandemic has brought to bear for the workforce. So congratulations on the birth of Max uh, to Miss Lane, city councillor out in Mount Pearl. They didn't have the policy in place, but now they do. Personally, I have no issue at all with a child, a baby being there with mother inside the chambers, because if you can get your work done at home with the kids all over the place, certainly you can be on point and attentive and effective inside chambers. But I might be alone in that opinion, but if you want to bring it forward, we can do it. One more, two more healthcare notes. So the Promise has now put out an RFP to replace St. Clair's. Of course, the announcement that kind of came out of nowhere. We'll see where that goes. And so some of the conversation will be the timeliness and the requirement to replace St. Clair's. It is an aged facility. The location is going to be the big debate, I would imagine, in this neck of the woods. On top of that, I'm having a devil of a time getting this conversation going, but the concept of the private-public partnership is a big one. You know, people are pleased enough to see all aging infrastructure replaced, whether it be the penitentiary or St. Clair's, new long-term care facilities out in Central, acute care hospital in Corner Brook. People need to see these pieces of uh, business being attended to by government. But the thought of the P3 is good news for government today, but maybe potentially bad news for the rest of us tomorrow. And tomorrow being 10, 15, 20, and notably 30 years from now. But that one is a big one. And if you want to bring it forward with any concerns, we can do exactly that. We hear the commercials from Canadian Blood Services. A pretty desperate plea for donations. And understandably so. It's pretty much an annual right uh, this time of year. And as noted by a listener via email, with all of the desperate need for blood donations... Why doesn't Canadian Blood Services take up the charge to bring some mobile blood collection units to other parts of the province where you know full well you could indeed see the residents in those areas, whether it be up the Bonavista Peninsula, down the Buren Peninsula, over on the West Coast, Great Northern Peninsula, and it wouldn't have to be all the time. But when the need is great, the opportunity to get closer to where people are and they'd be willing to roll up their sleeve and make a donation, I wonder what the holdup is or the resistance to that type of mobile blood collection unit. There used to be one, but I don't know what became of it, but that was an interesting suggestion, and I think on point by that particular emailer. All right. The stories of people being stuck in Pearson International Airport is disappointing for, for most, frustrating, angering for many, and especially when you add into it, WestJet closed their help desk yesterday at Pearson. Then you have this flights, uh, Flight 328 flying from Toronto to St. John's with 60-odd empty seats while people were crying for help. Get me out of here. And it's not just the disappointment from not getting home for Christmas. Uh, Marystown Sam Sr. told us yesterday one couple that he was speaking with in Toronto at Pearson, they were uh, scheduled to get married here in town on the 23rd. So the impacts are very real. And that's not to diminish the frustrations of families and their children who were so anxious to get home, many of which probably have not been home for quite a long time, and there they are, stuck. And what's WestJet doing? Not much. I see the opposition party here, the PCs, calling on government to do something about it. I get the sentiment, but what do we really think the province of Newfoundland and Labrador can do in short order to commission a charter or whatever the suggestion might be coming from the opposition? I guess I get where they're going, but is that something that the government should be involved in? I don't know, but if you want to take it on, we can do it. 
And I really want to speak with someone today or tomorrow that might make up some of the 43,000 people of retirement age still out looking for work. Work being done between the Seniors Advocates Office, so that's of course Susan Walsh, and the St. John's Board of Trade, just to hear your story and what you're experiencing when you're looking for work. Some of them may need to work, some maybe just want to keep working, to give back. Then there's be those who are forced to work, just to try to make ends meet. It may be uh, some cases of ageism out there. I know that to be true, absolutely. Maybe it's hard to come up with flexible hours, maybe remote work versus a full-time gig, which many people of that age, 55 plus, may not want. They might be quite content with 15, 20 hours a week, again, just to be active and or because they need the money. But if you're one of those folks in that category, it would be interesting to hear from you today if you are so inclined and have the opportunity. All right, price of fuels. You know what? I used to pay really close attention to the price of fuel. It was every Wednesday we'd get an update or maybe a forecast or a guesstimate coming from the late George Murphy. And I think a lot of people leaned on the numbers because they made a decision. It's either go out tonight or wait till tomorrow to fill up. Now it's so unpredictable. It is of very little value to many because it almost feels like there's no sense trying to get out in front or to wait to fill up your tank because who knows what the interruption formula at the PUB is going to look like tomorrow. So the price of gas was up, almost four cents. The rest of it across the board, down. Diesel over five, uh, furnace oil decreased by almost six and a half, stove oil down by 4.6. Propane seems to move very little, but I don't even know what we're doing reporting these numbers anymore. Maybe it's helpful to some, but, you know, say you go fill up today, but all of a sudden tomorrow goes down another three cents as opposed to the predictability of the once a week. Now, when we see dramatic drops, of course that can be helpful, but not to the folks who filled up yesterday or on a Saturday, not expecting the Sunday interruption formula, but there's the numbers for your consideration. All right. I don't know how sometimes the headlines read in some people's minds, and we know that headlines are to drive you to go ahead and take a click. The story's coming from the Port of Port Peninsula regarding World Energy GH2. Is the picture as divided as being portrayed in headlines in some stories? Maybe. You know, it's one thing for me to have a thought about World Energy GH2 and 164 wind turbines standing 200 meters tall, you know, a kilometer away from households and businesses. But, you know, that first stage, and remember, that's only the first stage being proposed by World Energy GH2, that just that footprint it would be about the size of the city of st john's and the peninsula is pretty small so people would have environmental concerns there'll also be the thought about the economic upside if and when it comes to pass and locals are trained and ready and will be hired so yeah i mean i think if there's going to be any big upside in it for us the taxpayer it's certainly worth the consideration but apparently the people went door to door they have a group that seems to be vehemently opposed at the exact same time, there's a significant number of people in the region who do not have work. Maybe this would be a great opportunity for them. But the amount of energy that could be produced, if it all comes to pass as per Mr. Risley's want, 500 wind turbines could be part of the play. Producing 3 gigawatts of electricity, that's more than three times the capacity at good old Muskrat Falls. But that one, is it as divided as being put forward? There is one group, they say 84% of the residents are against the project. Of course, I don't know how we can measure that in full, but we had Minister Parsons on the program to talk a little bit about it yesterday. But it's always mo- much more important, 
to hear from folks close by where these wind turbines and the hydrogen plant and the ammonia plant are going to be built. Okay, so they talk about the potential for population growth in the area with all those jobs available. Millions of dollars in revenue and the vibrancy fund and all the rest of it. But immigration has always been a very hot political topic. You know, you can be, it doesn't matter what your stance is on immigration, I think it's required at some level because, especially in this province, when the death rate is double the birth rate, the math does not work long term. Here's some numbers on the national scale. Year over year, the population of Canada grew by 860, uh, 865,000 people this year through immigration. 360,000 in the last quarter alone. So again, regardless of your political stance or leanings, there is a housing issue in the country. So even if you want to open your arms, welcome newcomers from wherever in the world, we don't offer them much of a welcome if we have a housing crisis facing them upon arrival and we further exacerbate the housing crisis facing Canadians anyway. It does not make you a bad person to factor that in. You can be pro-immigration, but also aware of and speak to the fact that it will make the housing issue even worse today. It's fine for the government to have skilled, targeted immigration policies, and they want to bring in 1.4 million newcomers over the next couple of years, with very specific skills being required. But if they don't have somewhere to live, then we're not doing themselves, us, the government, the economy, societal fabric, any favors. So we have to put that horse right back out in front of that cart. Maybe tap the brakes and figure out the housing issue before we fast-track uh, so much immigration that we just might not be doing them any favors. You know, welcome to Canada. Where am I going to live? Oh, I don't know. That's not a very good answer that would come from either the federal government and our provincial governments, even though immigration will be critically important on a variety of fronts. And in this province, the math is clear. But that's there is an issue with housing and access to health care that we can and should talk about if you are so inclined. And what's to say? Oh, too bad. The folks out of Marble Mountain, they were really hoping to open up the hill next week. Looks like it's not going to happen. The record-breaking snowfall in November has melted, gone by the wayside. So Marble, whether it be this upcoming ski season or snowboard season, and or whether or not someone wants to take it off our hands as a private operator, who knows. All right, for your information, we're only going to see bi-weekly updates on the province's COVID hub. Now we see yesterday, as it was updated, six new COVID-related deaths. That brings a total to 291 since the beginning of the pandemic. Hospitalization is up a bit. 19 people are now in the hospital. That's up from eight in the last update. Two of those are in critical care, which has declined from four. So I don't know how that's going to impact anyone's holiday or seasonal plans, Christmas plans. But if you'd like to throw your conversation into and We had Dr. Rod Russell on talking about the prevalence of respiratory illness this go-around. And I don't know how that's going to impact you. But anyway, one last one. The numbers are in. When the province mourned the Queen, it cost the Newfoundland Labrador taxpayer around a million dollars in public sector overtime. And I think the broader conversation is what does the future of the monarchy look like, both in England and here? I think people maybe underestimate just how powerful the Queen was in keeping it all together through some very difficult family circumstances and pressures around the world for some of the so-called colonies of the British, or pardon me, the royal ruling family. But anyway, it costs us about a million dollars when mourning the Queen. All right, we're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line follows there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My fave is when you pick up the phone and give us a call. To start us off when we come back, a good news story. Perfect. Don't go away. 
And welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Yvonne Dillon. You're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Merry Christmas to you. The very same to you. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know, in 1922, 100 years ago, on Christmas Eve at noon, my father, Walter Dillon, started the Avalon Taxi with a horse and sleigh on Water Street. We're going down Saturday, Christmas Eve. Uh, he has 30, little over 30 descendants here in Newfoundland, and many, 105 total. And we're going down a Saturday, Christmas Eve 2022, uh, and the stand is still there just to honor his legacy. So 100 years ago, Christmas Eve, Saturday, he started the Avalon Taxi with a horse and sleigh. And that stand, I believe it's the last stand, the last taxi stand in St. John's, to the best of my knowledge. I'm not sure. You very well might be right. But that's pretty amazing stuff, 100 years. So 100 years of uninterrupted service? Correct. Wow. From that day all the way through when my father died in 1981, my brother Kevin went down to the Avalon taxi. And up until COVID two years ago, Kevin turned 80. And uh, he finally gave it up. Now, my father worked the day he died. He was 77. And my brother was there until two years ago. But the stand is still there. And uh, we're going down now. You know, like uh, The sisters. My father had 12 girls and one boy. And five of us, five of the girls and one of the boys are still here in Newfoundland. And the others uh, married Americans and went away. But um, so we have, um, it's just really a feel-good story, a legacy, 100 years. He was 18 years old, Patty. His father died when he was 12. And he left school and took care of, he was the oldest of six. And he went to work then when he was 12. And when he was 18, he went down there. And he kept the taxi along with the farm, Dylan and son. He had a farm. He just worked and worked and worked. That's all he did. And, of course, sang and played and, and was just a wonderful, wonderful man and where, a wonderful father. Where was the farm? Uh, where the uh, Avalon Mall is now? Well, the Book and Bible, that was ours. We planted all kinds oh. of vegetables there. And then the parking lot, the Avalon Mall, the actual parking lot on O'Leary Avenue, that was level with the book and Bible, and that was our house was there, and all the way over to the river and down to Kenmount Road. And he bought, he bought 10 acres um, where the Crosby building is today. He bought that from Gladney's. We always call it Gladney's Field. He bought that, and we, he set uh, 10 acres there, uh, just across the street there, Kenmount Road. How long was the farm in operation before we get back to the taxis? Uh, 63, I think, he sold it. I believe it was 63. I was, yeah, I was 12. Um, so he sold, it. he sold the land then. But that land was given to him by his... His father died when he was 12. And his father's brother gave him this land because they hadn't married. So he was the, the heir and gave him that land there then um, uh, to him. Incredible. So you mentioned the Gladneys. I'm familiar with the Gladneys down in the Cove. In fact, one of the Gladney women uh, worked for my parents for quite a long time. Uh, so this is brilliant stuff. I'm glad we're starting like this here this morning. Did you ever work either 
in the in around the farm and or uh, dispatching or driving a taxi by chance? Uh, I didn't do the taxi, but we all did the farm. Mm-hmm. Well, he wanted twelve boys. He had 12 girls. (laughs) (laughs) He had to work with what he had. Right. So when we weeded, now mostly we did just the weeding, and uh, we'd weed the potatoes and we'd, uh, you know, all vegetables. And then on Saturdays, all through the summer for like eight, ten weeks, all through when the vegetables came in, we were the ones, we would knock on the door. We, he had the truck, oh, I'd love to show you a picture of the truck and the, and the vegetables that were on it. And we'd knock on the door, Dylan's are here, Dylan's are here. So on Saturday afternoon, they would make about $500 from the truck. And then that would get us through. We, so then we always had our own vegetables. Uh, we had our own milk. We had our own uh, chickens, our own eggs. So all of that was there because there was well, there was fifteen of us. So so you know, fifteen we, is mom and dad and thirteen children, right? Correct. Okay. Is the boy your brother? Is he still with us? And oh and yes, in the province? he's he is he is he turned um, he'll 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 kill me, but he turned eighty one. And uh, he said, I think I'm going to give it up. He said, I don't think I'm going to go back out. But Kevin worked every single day since my father died 40 years ago. Kevin uh, uh, has run the taxi. Incredible story. So do you happen to know any more about, I guess, stories being passed down through the family, about how and why your dad thought a taxi business was for him at the tender age of 18? Do you know how that all came about? Um, when he, as I was said, when, when he was 12, he went to work. Well, he went up, his uncles had the farm at that time. And he went up then and they had a Newfoundland dog. And he would deliver milk from the kettle, from our, their, their own kettle, deliver milk with the Newfoundland dog and a, and a sled. So that's how he would, that's the job that he had when he was 12. He worked with his uncles. And he more or less stayed up there. So, but when he went down for the taxi, he went down at noon, Christmas Eve at noon, from noon to six, and he made $11. That was a lot of money, Patty, in 1922. Uh, absolutely. And the $500 Saturdays, that sounds like a lot of money up to 1963 as well. Well, that sure worked for all of us, too. I mean, because he had the taxi, he bought a new car every year. Um, he was uh, quite a, he was an amazing businessman for, you know, you don't always need a, a school, a, a school and, you know, in order to uh, be brilliant. And he was. And she was, too. Is I know this all about him, the taxi, but um, my mother, they worked side by side. You know, through all this, especially in the farming business, because on my mother's side, uh, they were farmers. My nan and pop Neri were farmers as well. Um, so inside the world of 13 uh, siblings, 13 children, how many grandchildren or great grandchildren would your parents have today? Do you happen to know? We ha- I added it up the other day. There's a total of 105 descent living descendants. <laughs> These stories are remarkable. So I'm trying to do all the math here. So your dad was one of six and had one of 12 boys, had 12 girls, 13 in total, and 100 plus living descendants today of your mom and dad. Extraordinary. Correct. Correct. Great way to start the program today. Uh, tell us about your family, Yvonne. How many children do you have? I had one and grateful for him. I have no idea what happened to me. Everybody else seemed to manage to have two, three, or four. But anyway, I'm grateful I have Tony. Uh, that's so terrific. I have one, one son. <laughs> what are your plans for Christmas beyond visiting the stand on uh, on Christmas Eve? 
uh, we're, we're all going to get together. We go over to my sister Verna's. Verna's been doing this now for 40 years. She's had uh, Christmas Eve at uh, at her place this year be at her daughter's because it's we're a bigger so there'll be about 30 to 50 of us over there christmas eve is verna and, a good cook uh, boy i tell you what they're all good cooks i wish they that's another thing i never got that either but boy i tell you <laughs> what they are really really good at everything that they do they're a wonderful family so hold on Yvonne, you're not a good cook uh, I'm not bad. I can do um, a jigs, and, but not a lot. Don't you know? I can't do anything like just you. You come in and sit down, and me not prepared. No, I can't do it. No. How about baking? No. No good at that either. No, no. <laughs> You're adopted. <laughs> I asked her once. I said, "Mother, was I adopted?" She said, "Not damn likely." <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is a wonderful story, whether it be regarding Avalon Taxi and the 100th anniversary, which will be yeah. celebrated on December 24th. And at of course, noon, the at noon on Saturday, right we're on going to raise a glass to him just to honor him for all for a hundred years. You know, it just means so much to us, Patty. Uh, I imagine it does. And what would yeah. be his favorite uh, beverage to fill that glass? Uh, now, I always thought it was Captain Morgan, but they say no, if it's, oh, it was Captain Morgan, and I thought it was Johnny. I, say, I believe I am adopted. I believe you're right. She lied. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was Captain Morgan. That's what he loved. <laughs> and he deserved putting in all those hours on both fronts. Yvonne, yeah. I really appreciate the time. Be sure to pass along my best wishes for the holidays and the celebrations on the 24th to everyone in the family. Thanks so much, Patty. And if anybody is going down Water Street Christmas Eve, just just wave hi. And we're going to be giving out some candy. So if anybody would just like to stop by for a chat, we're going to be there for about an hour, and then we're going to tip a glass to Walter Dillon. I'm try- in my mind's eye, I'm trying to picture exactly where the stand is. Is it just off of Duckworth, or am I missing no, something? No, it's on Water Street, just below the courthouse steps. Oh, yes, right up alongside Aaron's. That's it. That's okay. where we're at. Very good. Great to have you on, Yvonne. Merry Christmas right. to you and yours. Merry Christmas, Patty. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 A hundred years in the cab business. Lots of conversations surrounding cabs and, you know, uh, ride services like the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, but that was a great way to start the program today. Let's take a break to stay half on track. When we come back, we're going to get an update on the fact that some 100 paramedics, ambulance operators, are poised to possibly take some job action. There's been a lot of votes in favor. So seven different emergency groups are governed by the fewer contract. And five of them voted 100% in favor. The other two, 75-plus in favor. Hubert Dawes, the business manager with the Teamsters Local 855. He's next. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the business manager with the Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's day for you? So far, so good. Yvonne got me off to a good start, so I'm happy with that. That was very, very good news. It's great to hear stories of longevity like that in our province. It's amazing, really, and especially in an industry like that, it's kind of a come-and-go type of business for the most part, but that was wonderful. She's a very nice lady, obviously. All right, the unfortunate reality is we've got to talk about so not-so-pleasant things, and that's regarding the more than 100 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are paramedics or ambulance workers poised to go on strike. Before we get to exactly what some of the stumbling blocks are, 
Take us back to the beginning of the conversation and the negotiation with the fewer group of ambulances in February. Did it get off to the rocky start that this was always inevitable, or take us through some of the steps? All right, so this this has been tedious right from right from the start of the whole process. We uh, in February we sent our notice as per collective agreement that we did want to renegotiate. Uh, we didn't hear back from the employer at this time, so that pushed us up to March at the end of the current agreement that we had in place. And when we didn't receive a response, we reached out to the minister to appoint a conciliation officer to help us try to reach a negotiate, reach a settlement or reach an agreement here. Uh, the employer uh, at that time took the stance that we weren't in a position to ask for the agreement to be reopened. Uh, he did not receive any new monies in the ASA. The current agreement, or excuse me, the ASA is the agreement that he has with government. And that was that expired at the same time, at March 31st of 2022. The government exercised their right to roll over the contract, and they extended it on to March 2023. And the employer took the stand that it was unreasonable for the union to be looking for concessions, despite the fact that we made concessions to get us to that point with the promise that come you know, March of, of uh, 2022, we would have had negotiations open again. So we made concessions in the last round of bargaining with our agreement to, with the understanding that we were going to open again in, November, in April. Sorry, um, The employer took the stand. I didn't get any more money, so there's no more money. There is no money to give to the members. And he, 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 made this, he made his case to the minister that he shouldn't have to be in negotiations. The minister's office found that we were completely within our legal limits to ask for this. He signed off on the collective agreement and agreed to it at that time. It took us up to June before we finally got to sit down and have a discussion on the agreement. And that was for only one of the companies. And at the end of June, he sent a letter to the conciliation officer informing the conciliation officer that all bargaining was off the table. He wasn't anything he agreed to up to that point was off the table. The agreement that we had in place now was going to stay in place until April or March 31st of 2023. And of course, that wasn't that was that wasn't an appropriate thing to do. It was definitely bargaining in bad faith, and we filed unfair labor practice complaints for all seven companies with the Labor Relations Board. They held a hearing, and he was found guilty of violating the Labor Relations Act by taking that stand, and he was ordered back to the table. We did get him back to the table for the same company that we were had discussed back in June. Uh, he did put down. He made a claim of bargaining of, of hard bargaining, but he did agree to everything that he had agreed to in the previous meeting. And we, we set to work on trying to solve the other outstanding issues that were there. Um, we met with one of the other groups. Then in September, he issued the exact same letter that he issued in June that he wasn't negotiating any further. And at that time, the union just felt it was appropriate to ask the minister to, you know, allow us to take a strike vote. So we, had, we asked for a final report to be written for all seven companies. The minister agreed with us, and on November the 18th, we were able to start traveling to our different bases and get start conducting strike mandates or our strike votes with our different bases, which brought us up to early December. Uh, we did get a very, very strong mandate from our, uh, from our members, as you uh, as you mentioned, just before commercial break. Five of those bases give us a 100% mandate. We have one base give us a 90 and one give us a 78. So, I mean, it was a very clear message from the members that we need to do something. And uh, we did have a last-ditch meeting that we, we talked about last week, uh, and the employer didn't even bother to show up to that meeting. Uh, nothing new was put on the table, and uh, we, 
we were hoping that when I was on your program last week and made the announcement that, you know, we are, we do have the strong strike mandate and we are willing to move forward, uh, pressure would have, you know, in, compelled the employer to at least bring something to the table for us. Now, we do have an offer for one of the groups, and the, uh, the group is now uh, reviewing that at this time, but the other six groups do not have an offer at this time. And the decision was made uh, on December 20th that we would start proceeding with some form of job action to, to increase our, our, our pressure and demonstrate our seriousness to getting a resolve and getting some change in the U.S. system in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. So the government did put forward an incentive of a, a bonus to full-time staff, 4% wage cre- increase over two years. But help, help us understand how they get paid anyway. Like how many hours a day do they get paid? Do they get paid for the secondary services? Would, you know, is generally speaking either offloading a patient or transferring patients between healthcare facilities? And then how does the word volunteer seep into all of this? As the current system is set up now, the um, we have we basically have two classifications of ambulances. We have our primary ambulances, which are the ones that most people see on the road. They're the ones that are, that are responding to the emergencies. They're the ones that are traveling with the lights and sirens. So when you have an emergency, you're calling for a primary ambulance. A primary ambulance is a multi-day, 24-hour-a-day shift for our members. So they work 24 hours a day. Uh, we have some that work two and then get a break, some that work three and get a break, five get a break. So it's, uh, it's a multitude of different schedules depending on the different regions of the province. So when these, uh, you know, these 24-hour shifts, by the terms of the of the agreement, they get paid for 11.43 of those hours, and then the other the other 12.17 hours is volunteer time, I guess. And the members work on the primary ambulances. If they happen to, they're getting to the end of their shift, say they get off at midnight tonight, and, you know, 11.30, a call comes in for an accident, and they go to the accident, the hospital is busy, they're on offload delay, they will be paid, their, their shift is considered paid up until midnight. Then once, once you get past midnight, we're on volunteer time for our primary crew members. Uh, you know, we did we do have language there that they're supposed to be paid straight rate, but the employers have been failing to to live up to that commitment. So the you know, and the employers, the employers quite okay with with that. So we have a crew out there that could be you know, some I've heard stories up to six to eight hours past the end of their shift. Now we do have language for for, for a small meal allowance for them for that time frame, but uh, you know, there is there is no pay for that. There is no overtime written into their agreement. Now, on the secondary ambulances, these are the, these are generally a Monday to Friday ambulance. They run about 12 hours a day. Again, depending on the region, that 12-hour time frame uh, you know, shifts a little bit depending on the need and what uh, history has been in those areas. Again, these paramedics and AMRs only get paid for eight hours of those 12 hours that they're working. Now, when the, the last ambulance agreement was signed with the province, the province did come up with the standard hour time and a half overtime for for these people so if they you know if they get to the end of their 12 hours and they're still on the road they will be paid a time and a half from that 12 hours so we have to remember there's four hour window in there that they haven't been paid for up to this point so it's it's you know very very discouraging when you see that i mean we sat down and we did the numbers and i don't want to quote them because they will get misleading but when you look at these people working 12 and getting paid eight we're working the 24 and getting paid the 11.43. Our paramedics and EMRs on the road are making less than minimum wage, and have you know expected to do more and and uh, you know expected to you know be there and be the commitment for the company. 
And, you know, because they're working multiple 24-hour days, it's not like these people can go and pick up a secondary job somewhere to help supplement their income. So, you know, at the, at the end of, the end of their, their pay period, they're, they're very, very tight on their pay period. There's no quality of life for these members. And they just this, these are the things that they're looking for. Last one for you, Hubert. This is if and when the strike takes place. And people are asking and wondering about what is the plan if this happens. You say it's not on your group, it's on the employer. Do you have any inkling as to what that plan looks like? We, we haven't had any, any, any indication of it right now. Uh, the union has taken the stand that we're, probably, we're looking at probably doing an escalating pressure-style strike. So uh, what, we've got, what we presented to the members, and again, the members will have to give us direction on this, but we, we're probably going to start with a, a work-to-rule campaign. So we will still be maintaining your ambulance services to the same extent that, you'll be, that the government has become used to the government expects from this contract. And, but we will be cutting out the, the other extra duties that the employer expects in their daily daily operations. So we will, you know, we will stick to the letter of the law. We will answer the calls within the time frames as, as dictated in the uh, in the ambulance service agreement. We will make sure that the you know the, all the legal paperwork is done and stuff like that. But any other additional tasks that the employer has placed on the paramedics as part of their normal regular duties that are not paramedic duties. Will will cease to be cease to be done once we make that decision. Appreciate the time this morning, Hubert. Stay in touch. Keep us in the loop if you can. I definitely will. Thank you for your time, thanks. Thanks, Hubert. All the best. Bye bye. Hubert Todd, business manager with Teamsters Local, eight fifty five. Break time. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the mayor of New West Valley. That's Michael Tiller. And then Sonia Smith from the Single Parents Association. She's in the queue as well. And then you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Michael Tiller. Mayor Tiller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Merry Christmas to you and the listening audience. The very same to you and yours, sir. Uh, before I put on the, the mayor's hat, uh, I am a paramedic. I've been working in the industry for 20 years. I just want to make a quick comment on what I just heard. Sure. Uh, we are. I am employed by the Fjord's Group of Companies, and we're represented by uh, Nate. We do have our did have our contract renewed. And the only the only comment I want to make is that until we're all uh, being represented by one union and being employed by one employer and the ambulance industry is always going to be in this, this state of, of rolling turmoil. This seems to be the case, and I don't work in the industry, but we've been talking about this for years, absolutely for years, about the disparity between the public and the private offering, whether it be pay, the demands for work time, up and down the line, and until there becomes a single unit, because the most recent move to amalgamate air and ground dispatch is the, the, the epitome of a baby step forward. It's a baby crawl. Yeah, fair but, enough. Uh, you're, you're right. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's the only comment I'll make on that. But okay. to put on the mayor, the mayor's hat, I have, a, I have a lot more positive things to say. Uh, we just had our final council meeting for the year. Uh, we, we did give it an award, the Divine Jane Spirit Award, for the, for the most spirited float in the Christmas parade. And it was given to a first-time entry to the teachers at Pearson Academy. Uh, we were happy to give that out to them. Von James was well known for his, his Christmas spirit and, and the desire to, to have a good Christmas parade. He passed away, unfortunately, way too young. So I was very happy to be able to do that. Uh, we also uh, finalized our budget. Uh, we Our town has grown. Thank God it's grown in size and budget. We currently have a $2.54 million budget. And I'm very happy to say that the uh, there is no mill rate increase for businesses or personal taxes. And the only uh, the only increase in fees, our garbage fee did go from 100 to 115, one five. 
So that's a $15 increase in your garbage fee. And that's to do with the increase that we keep getting from central waste management. They currently charge us uh, $190 per household. And uh, we're able to, to work the number so that we, we only have to, to charge the residents $115 fee. So I'm not going to say $15 is not a, a, an increase because it is. But it's, it's uh, with all the inflation and stuff that we're very happy that's the only thing that we had to do. I'm pleasantly surprised that many municipalities are coming in with similar types of figures. We have seen some property tax increases for both individuals and businesses. We have seen some water and sewer increases. But when you look at the cost of living issues and the inflationary pressures, I was expecting a worse round of municipal budgets, to be honest with you. So $15, of course, is an increase, but a welcomed one when it could have very easily been $150 because that's the way the world has been working. You mentioned the town is growing. Give us some idea how the growth is looking year over year. So how many people live in the West Valley, and how's that grown in the last number of years? Well, the people itself, well, unfortunately, we are our population is declining. I mean, obviously, we are an older community. Uh, we are probably losing more than we're gaining. But what we are seeing is an increase in retirees from Ontario, British Columbia, uh, the rest of Canada that, that really don't have uh, strong family ties, but they, they hear about our community and they, with the way the world is now, they look for houses in, in rural areas and they see houses that are for sale and they're moving in, which is wonderful. Uh, we are very lucky now next year that we, we're going to, the tender is going to go out for our six to seven million dollar water storage system, which is going to pave the way for our water treatment plant. Uh, we also have a new stadium and a new ventilation system that the tenders are going out uh, for for our stadium roof. Uh, so that's all good news. We also have uh, seniors affordable housing and accommodations that are being proposed to the town that uh, are on track to start next year. So we're not a dying community by any stretch. We are reliant on, on the fishery, of course, like most rural areas, but there's a lot of our workers in this area now that are going to... Uh, uh, Boise's Bay, and they're going to Norris Gander with a new gold mine. And that is the reality of rural Newfoundland. Everybody can't fish, but people want to live in rural Newfoundland. They just can't all work in rural Newfoundland. That being said, I mean, New West Valley is an example of collaboration or amalgamation, however people want to tag it. You know, conversations that you have with Metherby fellow leaders of municipalities and or LSDs, the concept of shared services, and everyone thinks all of a sudden regionalization is a dirty word, when it can be a very beneficial word, depends on how the, it's structured, because it's not going to be the same uh, same thing up on the Great Northern Peninsula and Southwest Coast and down the Bureau Peninsula. You know, what do you think of that concept and how those conversations work, or how should they work? Patty, our region itself is very cooperative. I mean, our stadium is a regional facility. We do get some uh, funds from the town of Lumsden. Uh, we get... Uh, collaboration with them when it comes to you know some of the things we want to do in the stadium uh also i mean we have equipment here such as a sewer jet that uh, if another town needs it then we'll we'll send it out with our workers and we'll help them out of a bind uh we are currently constructing a regional fire training ground that will be used with the uh, fire departments from lumsden to hare bay and anybody any other fire department that might want to come in so we don't look at you know, you have to look at New West Valley as your town, but your town is only as strong as the region it lives in. So if you're not cooperating with the towns in your area, then you're heading for disaster, in my opinion. And it's time for other areas of the province to look at that. If the town of Lumsden and, and the beaches that they have down there are bringing in flocks of tourists, that is only a benefit 
to any accommodations and any service industries that we have in New West Valley or in Greenspond or in Musgrave Harbor or, or CWT. You have to work together as a region or you're always fighting the same battles and, and you're not getting anywhere. Really appreciate the time and the good news. I'll call it good news regarding the budget and the float award that was handed out. I believe you said it was to the school, to the teachers, right? The teachers, yeah, they really put off a, a dandy little float, and they, they had little scooters out, and they were they put off a real good show. A, a very, very and, and what they did for the weeks leading up to Christmas with their their character days, and you know, uh, it, it's nice to see. And and I wish all the teachers and all the healthcare workers and anybody that has to work uh, during the holidays a very merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year. Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Teller. Have a great Christmas yourself, sir. You too, sir. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Michael Teller. He's the mayor of New West Valley. Let's go. Line number one. Corey, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I just want to put in a, a black mixed collie. Border collie is missing from 118 University Avenue. Okay. Is it Molly? Yes. Because someone I just saw out of the corner of my eye, someone sent me an email. All it said was Molly, and there's a picture of a, a black border collie. Okay, so now I have yeah. the picture to go along with the missing dog. Is is Molly a service dog? Yes. What kind of service dog? A therapy dog. Okay, and is it your therapy dog, Corey? Yes. Do you mind me asking what type of therapy dog, what kind of therapy uh, it offers to you? Uh, all kinds of therapy. Okay. And when did you last see Molly? Uh, about a half hour ago. She was in the backyard. Hopefully she's not gone too far. So uh, Molly is a black with a little tinge of white, if I saw correctly, on the head. Uh, black Border Collie, service dog, last seen in the backyard at 118 University Avenue about a half hour ago. So if you're around the university or the health sciences complex or Elizabeth Avenue in that area, and if you see Molly, uh, make sure you give us a shout or give you a shout. What do you want to do about that, Corey? Uh, can I give my number? Yeah, far away. Uh, 720. Yep. Oh, oh, four, seven. How long have you had Molly? Uh, how long have I had Molly? Yeah. 13 years. Oh, my. Okay, let's see here now. Okay, so folks in that area, that's going to be a busy spot uh, today. So if you see Molly, please give Corey a shout. His service dog of 13 years got out of the yard. Call 720-0047. And if you're driving around in that area, didn't have a chance to jot it down, call me or Dave, and we'll make sure we connect Molly back with Corey. Appreciate this. Fingers crossed. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. So, yeah, if you see Molly out bolting around that area, please do indeed get in touch with Corey or us. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the Single Parents Association, they had a long wait list of people looking for a hamper. We'll hear the update from Sonia Smith. And then, you know, we see and we talk about what the, not only first responders, we talked to Hubert talk about paramedics, but firefighters, those getting paid and those volunteering. We saw the volunteers out in Springdale respond to a pretty sizable commercial fire last evening. We'll talk about that and then whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at the Single Parents Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Sonia Smith. Hi, Sonia. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, Patty, I really wanted to call just to say 
thank you to everyone who has reached out to us this Christmas for every pair of pajamas, every toy, every gift card or monetary donation, Patty. It has been heartwarming to see the outpouring of of, um, support for our single-parent families. And, Patty, when we started this, as I mentioned to you, we registered. Oh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm sorry. I just nicked my uh, microphone with my finger. Sorry. Oh, okay. No worries. We registered 250 families, so we were pretty confident that we could take care of 250 families. Then, of course, we had 100 families on our wait list. Well, Patty, thanks to the generosity of so many people, we were able to support those 100 families. But, Patty, we have 65 more families that we were able to support because of the generosity. And we have sent Christmas packages, Christmas magic all over this province to the Northern Peninsula, to the Southwest Coast, Central, Conception Bay North, uh, Bonavista, Buren Peninsula, you name it, we've sent packages out the door. And we're so excited to say that it's 415 families who've been touched this Christmas because of all of your listeners and because of all of the support that we have received. That's a long way from 250. That's very encouraging. And I, at one point when you and I used to work together in your past role, I used to be sometimes really surprised when people stepped up to the plate, regardless of the economic times of the day. But they do. It's just uh, remarkable. It's incredible, Patty. It, it really is incredible. And it's incredible to see. And the people coming to the door, dropping off gift cards or making an online donation or uh, having a toy drive. It's just been amazing. And we are so grateful and so thankful. And I really wanted to let people know that today, that thank you so much for everything that everyone has done. And because of their support, we have been able to help 415 families. But we know that's going to increase as well, Patty, because uh, our office is open until noon tomorrow. So we know that there's going to be families calling us, and thankfully, we can help them too. Do you happen to know, and I'm not even sure why I'm asking this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you happen to know the breakdown of uh, single mothers of these families or single fathers? Because it was an interesting story from a lady up in Labrador who was looking for something to mimic the Gifts for Mom support program and created her own Gifts for Dad program, which I think is most welcome and also very heartwarming. Do you happen to know the breakdown inside your association? Well, we have about 90% who are moms and the other 10% who are dads. And I actually saw that story uh, earlier this morning. And I'm thinking, I need to reach out to that lady next year because we can help her with the dads in Labrador as well. And uh, that's one of the areas that we really want to provide support for next year is our families in Labrador. I'm glad I asked them because, you know, she could probably use some additional support and good honor for doing it because those types of things are going to be important because sometimes certain segments of society, I'm not just talking about single parents, kind of get left by the wayside and not intentionally, but because no one's taken it upon themselves to do something about it. No, you're absolutely right, Patty. And our program is open to dads, moms, um, anyone who is a single parent. And, of course, we have an application process, which all charities would have that. And uh, it's very simple for people to sign up, so we can we can take care of that, no problem at all. The other thing that I want to mention, Patty, uh, one of the uh, great things about our program is that we're involved in the network through Community Food Sharing Association. So we have to register all of our families. So thanks to them, they they cross-reference everybody who's received support from the Salvation Army or who's received support from us 
or who's received support from Bridges to Hope and other organizations, of course, just so that everybody gets a fair chance. So that, you know, families are receiving one support from one organization and uh, we can help more families like that. Appreciate the time. Uh, congratulations on the, su- the successes. So 415, that is a lot of people who will have a bit of a brighter Merry Christmas this year, not only because of your association, but of course, as you mentioned, the generosity of people who listen to this show and or are just familiar with your group in the first place. Uh, really appreciate the time. So and your Merry Christmas to you and everyone at the Single Parents Association uh, and your family. Thank you so much, Patty, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and everyone out there and all of our supporters. Thank good, you very much. You're welcome. Take good care. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's Sonia Smith. She's the executive director at the Single Parents Association of NL. That's pretty cool because the wait list looked like it was going to be potentially unmanageable, and now 415 hampers later, wonderful. Uh, let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Bay Vert Green Bay. There's Brian War. Morning, Brian, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, Patty, I just uh, want to take the opportunity to um, come on to your show this morning and express uh, my appreciation, certainly, and appreciation of the uh, folks uh, here in the community of Springdale uh, for the great work uh, that was done by our volunteer fire department uh, last evening in the uh, the fire uh, that that was over at the Yates, uh, Atkinson Yates uh, boat building shop uh, on uh, Corporal uh, Luzan Boulevard. And, How long uh, had that been abandoned, Brian? Uh, actually, the building, uh, Patty, wasn't abandoned. Uh, oh. know, uh, George H., the owner, uh, continued. Actually, Patty, I, I, we, uh, my, my own family, prior to my, uh, my entry into politics, uh, I managed a family-owned hardware and belief supply operation right next door. In fact, I, I couldn't believe last night because it was a fear of mine always, uh, you know, especially with a fiberglass shop. I mean, uh, not to say that they're that dangerous, but, I mean, you never know. And, and when uh, something sparks in a fiberglass sh- uh, shop, Patty, with, you know, barrels and drums of resin and uh, and the like, uh, highly flammable material, uh, you know, it was always a fear of mine. If that place ever caught that, I'd, I'd lose our operation as well. But it was not, to answer your question, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, vacant, uh, you know, George uh, and his family uh, have been operating uh, Atkinson uh, and Yates boat building shop there for 40 years. I, I reached out to George last night, actually, uh, you know, just out of concern for him and his family. And, uh, you know, George said, Brian, I, my, my life's work is gone. Uh, he said, I spent, you know, I guess 40 years with his with his dad and his mom and his brother in that business. And uh, his dad and mom have uh, since passed, but uh, Dean and George have been involved in that business for a long time. He said 40 years to build it up and two hours to see it, <clears throat> excuse me, to see it um, uh, in shambles, right? It, it's a terrible loss. It, I've only seen pictures, and it looks like a pretty significant industrial fire. Give us an understanding, because sometimes the pictures are a little bit deceiving. How close was that boatyard to the seniors' complex that I see in a couple of pictures? Very, very close, uh, Patty. I, 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 I would guess probably maybe... Uh, 60, 70 feet uh, between the two buildings. This this volunteer fire department, Patty, and, and listen, I, I have uh, and I have so much appreciation and respect for for these uh, men and women uh, who volunteer uh, their time and efforts. And I, I, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate. I've got 22 of them in the district of Baver Green Bay. Uh, you know, right from Brighton in the uh, south. Uh, east part of my district, uh, right to Lassie and Fleur de Lis in the, in the in the north on the Beaver Peninsula. But I've got 22, and 
you know, even Kings Point and Little Bay, with their mutual aid agreement with the Springdale Fire Department last night, uh, came and offered assistance. We had former members uh, that I spoke with last night, Patty, former members who have retired from the Springdale Volunteer Fire Department who were on scene last night, you know, uh, just trying to lend a hand. And they did. Uh, you know, their, their help was welcomed uh, by uh, Fire Chief Saunders and Deputy Chief Peter Hillier. Uh, who's on one of the programs this morning speaking about, uh, you know, the situation. And, and everything uh, went so well, Patty. I, I just want to, you know, the winds last night, I had an opportunity to speak to some of my colleagues, uh, including the Premier reached out, uh, Minister Hogan reached out with the Fire and Emergency Services. Uh, Minister Tom Osborne reached out last night with, uh, you know, uh, medical services from uh, from our friends with Central Health. Um uh, but it, we, we had no wins last night, Patty, and that's what really uh, saved both the building supply uh, operation on the, uh, the uh, right-hand or left-hand side of the uh, building and uh, Kingsway Retirement Centre on the right. And I think that's probably a 70 or an 80-bed uh, unit that was uh, just recently built, Patty. That's probably uh, seven or eight years old, if it's that. Uh, but... You know, it was uh, Peter Hillier had mentioned this morning, uh, you know, things ran very smoothly last night. It was like a well-oiled machine. Uh, they had the Salvation Army, who I'd like to thank as well. I mean, set up as a muster station. Uh, you know, the staff at Kingsway and the, uh, uh, the EMS uh, members of Central Health were there to uh, transition the residents uh, to the Salvation Army. Um, you know, it was just buckles bussing. Uh, you know, I had two buses on transporting these, uh, these residents. Uh, you know, and, and, and their belongings, medication, that kind of stuff. Uh, Patty, it was, like I said, it was uh, an amazing job uh, by all. We had municipal leaders, uh, you know, from the town of Springdale on, uh, on site last night, making sure that, uh, you know, they, they offered a, a helping hand as well. So, listen, I, I just can't say enough, Patty. Well, it, it could have been horrible if we're talking about the proximity to the senior's home, to the boatyard. So, you know, we can't thank the folks enough as first responders. But there is something especially inspiring about the volunteer firefighters. It's really quite something. I've gone to a couple of volunteer firefighters' functions, and the commitment they have to the community is unparalleled. It's really, truly remarkable stuff. Uh, good to have you on, Brian. I wish you and your family well over the holidays. I appreciate it, Patty, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and staff at BOCM and, and certainly to all, uh, all the folks in uh, Baber Green Bay. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Brian Wares, the uh, Liberal member for Bay Ver Green Bay. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about gun laws. Margaret's there to talk about the Halipoo registration. We had a talk, uh, conversation with Greg James yesterday about the fact that uh, law enforcement and military members have been omitted from the Halipoo registration. I'm not sure if that's Margaret's angle, but we'll talk to her after this. And also, Greg Pretty, he would like to be the next president of the FFAW. Of course, he's been uh, endorsed by the executive, and then we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Patty, first of all, I'd like to say Merry Christmas to you and Dave and all of VOCM, and especially thank you and Dave for uh, giving us, uh, giving me uh, and us uh, the, uh, the opportunity to talk about outdoor issues in our great province. Happy to do it. Uh, Patty, this morning we talk about the, uh, the federal gun laws, and uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's a hard it's a hard one to swallow. I'm not going to go in and, and uh, talk about the guns and this and that. But uh, you know, here are some people talking about the uh, firearm licensing. That I sent you an email, Patty, about the history of the uh, a brief history about the firearm laws in Canada. 
I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at it or not. I, I didn't, uh, but I also had to forward it to my own Gmail to look at it later because I can't open a Facebook post on this computer for some reason, but I will have a look. Ah, I see. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Patty, uh, first of all, the uh, the f- first uh, uh, permit that came into effect was called the FAC, which stands for the Firearm Acquisition Certificate. That no longer, no longer is in effect. It has been replaced for almost 20, over 20 years now by the uh, Possession Acquisition License, or the PAL, we call it. That allows me to possess and use the firearms I already have, to acquire firearms, whether I intend to buy, uh, buy them or not, receive them as a gift, or trade or barter, or, or inherit it. Um, so we've been complying with our laws, and now we have this one being proposed, which comes out of nowhere, as, as most people would say, and it's targeting a legitimate legal, law-abiding citizens such as myself and, and most of uh, most of the other people. Um, we're kind of sick of being picked on. Uh, you know, we, we want to conform and, and do what we have to do by law and by uh, ethics to make sure everything is safe and right and that. But I am a licensed firearm owner. I'm a licensed owner, but licensed by the federal government of Canada. Same as same as, and I know it's a different analogy, but same. I'm licensed to drive a car. I'm licensed to drive a, a boat. This, that, and everything else. So when how we can't get our heads wrapped around how this proposal, how this is going to curb the uh, crime rate, the illegal uh, gun smuggling at the border, and everything else. Uh, the majority of people in Canada are not firearm owners or hunters or target shooters, etc. So they may not have any kind of understanding as what the situation really is. Uh, I feel myself, my own personal opinion, that the Canadian people are being fleeced by the Canadian government, or more specifically by Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, into thinking that, hey, this is a great thing. We're, doing, we're, getting, the, we're getting the guns off the street. Well, no, that's not. We're getting the gun. You're taking the guns from the legal law-abiding citizens whom you have licensed as, as legal firearm owners. Sure, I get that. But any time there's going to be gun control legislation, it will always be about uh, law-abiding, quote-unquote, law-abiding citizens because the people who are not law-abiding, we're trying to deal with them through the criminal code of Canada as it already is written. There has been some additional focus at the border, which is where it should start. If we know from the National Police Chiefs Association that, say, Bill C-21 will not enhance public safety, they know full well the vast majority of guns, especially handguns, are ending up in the hands of criminals being brought across the American border, whether that be by the gangs themselves or... I would suggest it might be an idea to look at how many Ontario and Quebec license plates go to those unregulated gun shows in the northeastern United States and come back with these guns. Not everything that comes back is with some uh, shadowy, organized criminal either. Some of these are people who are trying to make a quick buck on the side, so let's not kid ourselves there. But gun control legislation is always going to impact those who have a permit or a license to own one of these firearms. The biggest problem with the bill... And I've admitted many times, I have no real understanding of the firearms on it, but the friends of mine that I spoke with do. If one gun or one firearm is the exact same thing, albeit a different color, manufacturer, and model number, one's banned and one is not, there's obviously a massive problem with that, and it makes no sense. So going back to the drawing board to get closer to right is required. It looks like they're trying to do that. Whether or not they come out with an end product that is acceptable or understandable remains to be seen. But as the, as it currently stands, the, bu- the bill doesn't really make much sense. 
Yeah, absolutely, Patty. Thanks for that. And, uh, you know, we feel the same way. And, uh, you know, to talk about the, the guns that are going to be banned and this and that, I mean, I have one of those guns. And my magazine right now for that firearm cannot take more than four cartridges in the magazine. But if there come, to my understanding, if the magazine becomes available on the marketplace legally that would hold more than five, then my gun would fall into that, my rifle would fall into that category. Now, I'm not looking to buy a magazine that takes more than five. In fact, it's been illegal, illegal in Canada to have a, have a magazine that uh, has a capacity of more than five, five rounds of ammunition if you're using a semi-automatic centerfire rifle. And that's been in effect for quite a long time. Is the capacity issue five in the magazine, one in the chamber, or is it four in the magazine, one in the chamber? No, it, what, what it is is five in the magazine, period. period. Okay, just want to make more, sure. More than, more than, I'm sorry, more than five in the magazine. Right now you're allowed to have a, a, a magazine capacity that can take up to five cartridges. That, may, that inclu- also includes one in the chamber. But it's talking about the magazine capacity itself. So why not... Why not take aim, pardon pun, uh, or no pun intended, take aim at making the magazines prohibited? Yeah. As they have in the past with other things. I'm not going to get into that, of course, but, you know, there's, there's so many alternatives. And to, to, to now uh, direct all this money that's going to pay for this, uh, this, uh, this thing, well, isn't that better spent to to tackle the real problem of, of gang violence, illegal gun ownership, illegal uh, gun smuggling. Yeah, there's been some work there done there, and there's been a, an increase in the punishment for smuggling a handgun into Canada. And there's got to be more done there, because if public safety is the end goal, then why don't we listen to folks who are in the public safety business? And that would be the police chiefs. If they've got better ideas than, the, than Marco Mendocino, and inevitably they do, let's hear from them. You know, it's one thing to hear from the gun owners because every time there's any gun control legislation, people inevitably get their back up. Let's go to the cops because the police chiefs know what they see on the ground. They have the data from wherever they are the chief. If they have ideas about public safety, you know, whether it be at the border or punishment or the numbers of people working in law enforcement, let's incorporate that into these types of bills before we simply start with politicians just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing how many uh, firearms they can put on a banned list. And some of that has been deeply flawed from the get-go. When Bill Blair was the minister, they started off with that list of 1,500. And before we knew it, and before anyone was told, additional firearms were added. And so unbeknownst to the Canadians who had a license for one firearm or another, they were now committing a crime and they had no worthy idea because no one told them their, their firearm had been added to the list. So this has been a problem for the Liberals. They can't seem to figure this out at all. Uh, Barry, anything else on that? Because I have one very quick question about something else for you. Uh, Penny, just, uh, just that, you know, the, uh, I think it, 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 it's disgraceful that the federal government is trying to fleece the Canadian people by making it look like they're doing something when actually they're not. With, with this with this gun law too and as well you know the, the, I'm, I'm not a handgun owner I don't think I want to be I have used handguns from, from friends at the Rodney Gun Club of course and this and that but just because I don't want to own a handgun just because I don't want to go shooting a handgun at, at, at an approved range which is the only legal place I could discharge it does that mean that I should look up on somebody else and say that they shouldn't have, have it and as well now with this with this C21, if you go through about the handguns, uh, let's just say for a second I own a handgun, which I don't, Patty. I'll freely I don't. Uh, when I when I pass on, 
I can't pass that handgun to 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 my son or daughter that has returned in and destroyed. Yeah, there's lots of things we can't pass on. The handguns are a different issue for me, to be honest. Uh, you know, I know people go to the sports shooting, and that's their argument against any handgun bans. But if we're going to be talking public safety, and handguns will be the notorious weapon used by the criminal element, the gangs, or what have you, how can we not not have a conversation about handguns and their place in Canadian society? Uh, I've, I've really got to go, but I just want to get your thoughts very quickly on the two fellas who have been fined because they were poaching salmon. $2,500 is the fine, and they are prohibited being on or within, I think it's 20 meters of inland waters for three years. So it sounds a little bit like a slap on the wrist. And you know what? Given the price of everything, poaching and whether it be salmon or big game might become a little bit more popular here now. For some people, possibly out of necessity, even though I'm not giving them a free pass or any excuse for it. But that doesn't really seem like much of a penalty. Patty. You're right. It is a slap on the wrist, and you're not the only one. I'm not the only one who says that, uh, as well as the, uh, the time that you lose your privilege of, of that. Uh, it is only a slap on the wrist, Patty. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and this is not any kind of negative comment. With the lack of enforcement, how the heck are, they, are you going to make sure that they're away from the river? And a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of poachers would say, well, you know, I'll just go and get some more salmon and pay my fine. We're, 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 myself and uh, a few people have been lobbying the government, provincial and federal, to increase declines up on, up on uh, conviction, to confiscate all the property that they have at the scene of the alleged crime, and increase the amount of the time of loss of privileges. We may be, Patty, we may be, I'm hoping, seeing some uh, results of that lobbying effort, which has been going on for over five years to this coming up in the next year or so. I'm hoping that, that we do. And will that be a deterrent to the poachers? Maybe not, but it'll, it'll keep a lot of people in line for fear of, of that. A lot of people really thought that if you were caught, there goes the truck, there goes the quad, there goes the side-by-side, and that's not true at all. So anyway, Barry, i got to get going, but I appreciate the time this morning, and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you and yours. Patty, thank you very much. Same to you and yours, and uh, as always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. All right, there you go. Uh, let's get to the break. Before we do, I want to say good morning and thank you very much to a small group of veterans out on the West Coast. They're called the Veteran Canada Riding Club. Through their own fundraising efforts, they were able to provide 26 Christmas hampers with a complete Christmas dinner and chocolates for the kids from Deer Lake to Port of Basque, all picked up and delivered by the club. Bravo to the folks who are members of the Veteran Canada Riding Club. Let's take a break. When we come back, Margaret, appreciate your patience. She wants to talk about the Halibut registration, and then it's you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Margaret. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's a bad thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Great. Patty, the reason I'm calling today is uh, I've got some exciting news. As you know, we've been, uh, you know, a long time. This has been a long time coming that we are actually going to be having our trial beginning January 16th, 2023, through the Friends of Halibut Applicants Advocacy Group. Uh, where we're we're finally going to trial to try to expose the injustice and seek justice for all who were tossed from the Halibut Mi'kmaq ban wrongly, we believe. 
So is that members of, I think it was called the Founders List. Is that the right reference, Founders List? So in the, how this all happened, really, it began with the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, of which um, was I was a member of the Federation of Newfoundland Indians that actually morphed into the Halibu Band. So it... it, it Federation of Newfoundland Indians became the Halibut Band, but what they forgot were the people <laughs> belonged to the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, you know, or many of us. So we've worked long and hard to have our day in court, and uh, it's finally coming to fruition. So help me further understand exactly what's at stake here. So is it to have every single name of people who were bounced out of status immediately reinstated to or is it to reopen a process that can be a bit more fair and open because the original process always felt like it was reverse engineered they had a number in mind and once they exceeded that they started eliminating people who are brothers and sisters one lives on river <clears throat> pardon me one lives in st john's the town he's out so what's the hope everyone's reinstated or there's a new process that makes a bit more sense well you know fairness i mean you know this this the court case that we're having so over a six-year period We've worked hard. You know, we, we talk about 10,512 original members, but this is far beyond that. We're fighting for all people who were unjustly treated, so whose applications were not properly reviewed based on an agreement in principle we call the AIP, which was signed by the federal government and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians in 2008. Harper was in power then. I was there for that signing. And unfortunately, the signing parties decided to amend the agreement in principle by way of a supplemental agreement. Uh, you know, and, and supplemental agreement is, is exactly what we're asking to have rescinded in our statement of claim okay. in court. And when is it going to be heard again, Margaret? Uh, January 16th, 2023, at the Supreme Court of Newfoundland. I know that that courtroom can hold about 300 people. And, Patty, we've got people coming from all over Turtle Island. You know, our people, our Mi'kmaq people are traveling here. They've all booked reservations. They're coming. They've got their hotels booked. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, this is going to set a, a precedent for sure. Does the provincial court have the jurisdiction for the be-all and end-all say and to set precedent, or is this inevitably going to be held in a federal court for a final uh, final ruling? Well, there's a different class action being held in the Supreme Court of Canada, but we came at this from a, you know, Halibut Band is, is a, a corporation. So, of course, we came at this from a corporate perspective. Okay. So, you know, uh, can I mention our lawyer's name, or is it not necessary? Oh, that'll be public record. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, so Brown, Fitzgerald, Morgan, and Avis, um, the lawyer's firm. Keith Morgan is our lawyer. He's fabulous. And this is actually our fourth time, I believe. Yeah, this is our fourth time. So we had to go through a lot of processes to get to this point. We have, you know, whether it's things we've created that we've put up on auctions within our advocacy group to raise the money. It's a half-million-dollar court case that mm -hmm. has come out of, uh, you know, out of the amount of members we have, there have been about 900 members that have been huge donors, and they've, you know, whoever could give, gave. And whether that's in kind words or monetarily, but we've raised a half million dollars out of our own pockets, a small group of people who were unjustly treated. I mean, this is, you know, not just about a status card. People talk about status cards. And, and Patty, we're, we've done this for all 
for all people who didn't have a, a fair chance to become part of the band. Not to mention people like my family, my 82-year-old mother, matriarch of her family, born an Indian and, and identified on the pre-Confederate census as that tossed out. I mean, she was a Federation of Newfoundland Indian. How yeah. does that happen? Well, I, I don't know, but uh, obviously this has been a... Uh, boondoggle from the get-go. Margaret, not to ask, uh, I'm not trying to be inappropriate, but what does yeah. someone get with a status card? Like, what, what what, does it mean, realistic terms, whether it be financially or otherwise, or simply to be a member of what is a landless band, but what does it mean? What do you get? So, for me, a status card is actually my ID card. It's shocking that any group, any culture would need an ID card, but, you know, with that comes a lot of inherent birthrights. We were considered non-status because of Joey Smallwood's penciled out term, you know, and I can certainly send that to you if you're not familiar with it, but I'm sure you are. I am, yep, um, I know what it is. This has been a long time conversation. The Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland, Uktahumguk uh, is how we say it in Mi'kmaq, uh, we were actually, to my knowledge, the first Mi'kmaq to actually hold a treaty, which is actually not the same treaty as Nova Scotia, by the way, pre-Confederate treaty. You know, uh, our, our ter- the way that we have been treated as people that didn't exist, historically, I mean, the narratives that were written are always written by the victors, aren't they? You know, those are not our stories. Um, we've been here a lot longer than people realize we've been here. And our inherent birthright by that card does give us some perks. Of course, I've never availed of any perks. You know, like such things as being able to get tax off your car, yeah. uh, possibly education. I've got a daughter who spent $55,000 educating herself to become an audiologist. We've never availed of anything. Of course, in 2018, you know, uh, anything that we could have availed of was taken away, including our un- non-insured health benefits, which, you know, when you have sick people who have been dependent on that because... That was their insurance. They didn't have to have insurance any other way. And then that's taken from them. What happens to the diabetics that don't get their medications covered? You know, what happens to people with heart conditions? Like it's convoluted is an understatement, Patty. Mm -hmm. And did some people come into the process for that? Probably. That was never, I mean, for us, it was about being recognized, You know, I was born in 1962. I'm 60 years old. What could I possibly... I bought my new car. I didn't save tax on my new car. I didn't have the the privilege. Let's call it a privilege. Because, you know, there are people who've come into this that have availed of some of those privileges. For me, I feel it is part of the agreement that when we formed the Halibut Band through Federation of Newfoundland Indians, yes, that would have been kind of part of the treaty agreements that we made pre-Confederation. You know, when you think about the the extraction of resources, it's not our people that are benefiting from that. You know, when you think about Native people being consulted, we don't get to be consulted because we don't, we don't even get a vote. As of 2018, when we were removed, I have no voice, but I've inserted myself. I have a voice because I'm a strong advocate. And I go to every event. I speak when I get the opportunity. I take the platform, you know, to to educate people on the truth from our perspective. 
And that's really important because this has been so convoluted that people are sick of hearing about it. It is confusing to everybody. There's so much misinformation being shared. And, you know, the truth is, is that we are a group of people who simply want to be recognized for the people that we are. It breaks my heart, Patty. You know, we are the water protectors and the land defenders. And we don't get a voice. We don't get called to the table as non-status people. There's so much more involved than that status card and the the benefits that you get from that status card. It's about the recognition of a people who've been wiped out. That's genocide, Patty. And it continues to perpetuate harm and division. You know, I mean, now they're talking about a group of people, you know, being reinstated. Meanwhile, this small group of people that have worked our butts off to raise a half a million dollars to go to court to fight for everybody. What about us? Have we ever really been considered? I think not. We'll see what comes to pass in a court of law, but I appreciate the update today, and I think you began the conversation by saying it's good news, and I would imagine for those who you represent and those who contributed inside that half a million dollars, they would consider it good news to be heard. Uh, Thanks for this, Margaret. And thank you so much. And, and Patty, in our language, Willie Noelli ak buzul banane. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. The very same to you. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Take bye-bye care. now. All right, bye-bye. Uh, before we get to the break, we're going to go line eight. Leon, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, uh, I just wanted to call and uh, tell everybody, well, in our area, in the Marystown area, we, uh, we're having our third annual Christmas dinner again this year, and it's going to be happening on Christmas Day starting at 12 o'clock. Um, this is our third one, and uh, we got a lot more people this year signed up than years past, I guess, due to COVID. Um, we're hoping that this uh, storm that's coming now Christmas Eve is going to not hit us or whatnot, and uh, we're hoping we won't need very many deliveries. And... But at the same time, if we do, we will. And it's it's totally free. It's uh, like I want to stress that it's I mean, I know a lot of people think it's for people who are less fortunate than that. And which is true. But at the same time, and it don't matter if they're seniors that are home and got lots of money and just got no one to nowhere to be or or to eat with on Christmas Day. They're more than welcome to come here, Patty. That's a good thing, because I think you make an, uh, an interesting point. Some of these offerings very much sound like it's for those less fortunate, those who do not have an opportunity to have a bite to eat on Christmas. But how many folks are in that circumstance? They're simply alone. And they may indeed be able to afford to go to the grocery store and get all the fixings for a a Christmas dinner. But eating it alone is a different feeling than eating it with others, whether they're less fortunate or like-minded or in the same boat. So that's a good one. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's. uh, I mean, and there are some people that mention it to me and ask me if, they were allowed to come even and and I know these people who had careers and got some money and I told them I said yeah you're more than welcome their family is not going to be home for Christmas so we're hoping to see them again here on uh, Christmas Day for sure fantastically I'll give the folks the details the where the winds one more time Patty it's uh, happening in Marystown on Christmas Day uh, it's at the Stagehead Restaurant and Lounge here uh, it's free it's open to the public surrounding areas. So there's no need to no one to be alone there on Christmas Day. If anybody's in the area, seniors or anyone, 
they can pop in here. Thanks for this, Leon. Good luck with it. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Patty. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, break time. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. You're next. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the current director of Industrial Retail Offshore at the FFAW. That's Greg Pretty. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good. How you doing? Good man. So how did it work, Greg, before you got the endorsement? Did you tell fellow members of the executive that you wanted to be the next president after Keith Sullivan? Did they approach you? Talk us through how the endorsement came to be. Well, there was there was a, a combination of uh, of events that happened. Once Keith decided he was going to leave, then uh, very quickly people uh, approached me, uh, and um, and within I'd say within an hour or so, uh, there was an endorsement from the executive board because it, it actually took place at an executive board meeting. Some people consider that very quick uh, endorsement to be unfair to potential rivals of yours. Your thoughts. Well, my thoughts, I mean, it's a very important organization. It's probably the most significant organization uh, ever uh, to be instituted in this province. It's changed the social dynamic uh, of this province. And one just can't uh, throw it up in the air. There has to be leadership, and the leadership came from where it should come from. That's the executive board of the union. That's the top of the wheelhouse. That's That's the wheelhouse of the union. So when they make an endorsement, it's it's pretty significant, but it's done and it's completed in a fashion to ensure that uh, there's well, for example, continuity, and and that uh, we certainly don't expose ourselves to people who spent the last seven or eight, ten years trying to destroy us. So that's that was a pretty logical step. I don't see any difficulty with it as we move forward because you know there are individuals there now, for example, who, who don't have the best. Uh, have the best intentions uh, for this outfit. We got a lot of work to do, Patty. And you know, part of this thing, by the way, it's a like a Christmas kettle bell ringing for fundraising for for the other organization. So, so we have work to do. We don't want to be distracted. And uh, you know, I'm I'm running, and other people can run. And uh, as per our constitution, nothing untoward here. As much as you know, the callers may say. Uh, but uh, it'll unfold and, and, and life will go on. That's how, that's how I see it. Yeah, I'm simply giving you a chance to react to what uh, has been said and what we've heard. So on yeah. that front, you know, I, I think this came directly from Jason Sullivan yesterday, is that your voice would provide continuity, but it would suggest that the status quo is working for all represented by the FFAW, as opposed to new ideas, new blood, someone who's maybe been a bit of an outsider, which I think he would admit to being the current president of CNL, and of course, big part of the Fish and L voice. So he would suggest that status quo is what you get with Greg Pretty, and to that you say what, sir? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't pay too much attention to uh, what he says, for starters. The issue here is is the, the FFAW. We have work to do. There is a, the, the presidency is vacated. Uh, there is an election process in place. And I'm not going to get sidetracked on that on that issue there's very, as you know from your show, uh, there's very important issues coming up this spring in the crab and the shrimp. And, you know, this is, a, a, in many respects, uh, from that organization, it's a distraction from the real issues here. So my experience, Patty, just, you know, and I, I think you you probably know anyway, I've, I've had considerable bargaining experience in this province. I've got over 100 collective agreements. 
I've worked in bargaining, collective bargaining in all of those uh, fish species. So I'm putting forth a strong leadership here in, in you know, troubled times. And, you know, the, the boards will make a decision as to, you know, who, who wins that election. But I'm certainly out there with, uh, with a strong voice, with the experience, and, and uh, with the experience in collective bargaining and negotiations to, uh, to cut us through these difficult times. So I don't see it as a detraction at all. We can get to shrimp and crab uh, before we wrap this up. Inside the electoral process here, it's only mm-hmm. the inshore council members in good standing that are able to vote, is my understanding. But you'll be the president of everyone represented by the FAW. Inshore, offshore, plant workers. Should it not include a vote for every single member in good standing? Because you will represent them all, not just members of an inshore council. Do you think that should well, change? Well, it's the Constitution. I mean, I'm a candidate. It's the Constitution. That's the process that we have. They'll get an opportunity. This term, by the way, as you probably know, is about two years. Yep. So the, everybody will get an opportunity to vote in two years on whoever they see fit as president or and, and secretary treasurer, for that matter. So, but I can only go by by what what the Constitution uh, says and, and states. So, I, you know, I'm a child of the Constitution in many respects. And of course, amendments are part and parcel with constitutions as a living, breathing document. Would you be in supporting years future to change it so that midstream elections like this, which have consequence, would include all dues-paying members in good standing? Well, I'd be willing to have a look at uh, at possible constitutional changes. Of course, I mean that's part of my. That would be a part of my position as as president. With and, your and of sorry. course, and of course, of course, sir, we 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 take direction from from the executive board also on those issues. Your current position as a the a director gives you access mm-hmm. to the uh, location and the contact information for those who are members of Inshore Council, much unlike Jason Sullivan and Dave Callahan. Do you think in the and the era of fairness that they should be able to get a look at those names and contact pieces of information so they can make their case, you know, directly to those folks versus only you have that advantage today on top of you the know, endorsement? See, once once again, uh, we're we're going down uh, rabbit holes here. On uh, well, how would that be rabbit hole? People who are going to have a vote to hear from candidates. Well, let me tell you, right? I mean, that organization, you know, organization that has has tagged us since. Since Keith, you know, since Keith got in, since since Earl was there, you know, nobody's any good. The labor movement's not good. Lana's not good. Uh, uh, Mary Shorrell's no good. So we got all of that. So this same organization now, who, who went to the labor board with a soft fish box, well, obviously empty, uh, has no contacts. Purport to say they have no contacts in the fishing industry. Uh, I, I find that a little a little rich. But but it also but it will generate some funds for them. And I guess that's that's fine. That's fine too. But but the issue is uh, they they have contacts and whether or not, by the way, because I'm still a candidate, Patty. Whether or not they get that uh, is really up to the election committee. And I think uh, you know to be fair to them, I think they've they've requested some of that. But they've also gone on your show and you know uh, and made an issue of it. But. But, uh, you know, let, let the parties deal with that. If that's the election committee issue, and I believe it is, then they'll deal with it. I won't deal with it. Let's get to shrimp and crab before I run out of time. So 100 collective agreements uh, in your back pocket or that you've been involved in settling. What are you talking about would be the specific concerns in the upcoming crab and lobster season, or pardon me, shrimp season, because I'm pretty sure I know what they are, but where do you start? 
Well, that's a good question. We've already it's already started actually because there are people who are very concerned about what's going to happen uh, based on, uh, on price and, and inventories, and it's a uh, you know it's a provincial issue. And so, uh, I, where do we start? Well, if I'm elected, uh, I intend to uh, call the government uh, to task and and the companies to see if, if we can find some common ground to move for forward on on these issues. I want to involve the insurer council and of course the executive board because there's some pretty weighty manners coming uh, coming out there right now and uh, so some common ground first and and then uh, we'll uh, as as we move closer to april and the start of the season i mean some of these uh, some of these market issues will become uh, much more apparent than they are now a lot of rumors out there now patty as to what what i don't want to talk the industry down either like uh, like some other uh, individuals who are doing but I'm looking at it uh, from a perspective that, first of all, there has to be a whole lot of work uh, done. Uh, that's going to involve uh, our committees. It's also going to involve fish harvesters standing up and being a lot more militant than they were uh, in the past. Because, for example, and you probably know all about it, uh, there, uh, there are some companies who like to stick handle around the final offer selection. Well, uh, you know, that's going to change. That's going to change greatly if, in fact, uh, we get into that situation. So it, it has the potential uh, for trouble, but at the same time, uh, with the new leadership at S, I, well, they're not there yet, but uh, I, I assume they'll be there at some point. New leadership at S, uh, new leadership here, and uh, the involvement of the province. Let's see if we can uh, make a hand of it and uh, get this. Uh, get this fishery up and going in, in some structured order. Yeah, you mentioned ASPA, which of course is the Association for Seafood Producers, and so big change at both organizations. Outgoes Keith Sullivan, Outgoes their leader, Derek Butler. When you're talking about finding common ground, is that about price? It's about, well, it's about more than price. Uh, in addition to price, it would be well, because the price-setting panel is a sort of a strange beast in and of itself. A rep, you know, so-called rep, uh, representing your price, one representing the association's price, and then a chair, and eventually they pick one or the other. It's always a bit of an odd uh, approach in my mind. But in addition to price, what's the common ground you're looking to achieve? Well, you know, the, the, on, the, on the panel itself, it was put in there for a very, very good reason. Uh, we had there were times in the '90s we had uh, strikes for three months on prices for less than fifty cents, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a lot of uh, financial impact on on harvesters and communities. So they put the structure in place to um, to change that to, to put more order and structure. Now, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, some companies have are stick handling around that that process that promised to pay the price. So so the price is one issue. But the other issue is, is, and I think maybe uh, become very apparent, is that the uh, the amount of crab that's that's coming in uh, would be an issue, and how how that is uh, is landed appropriately. That may be um, um, that may be an issue for um, for the uh, processors as we as we move through this, and there are also inventory issues and and um, and issues with respect to uh, financing for some of these plants so you know that's that's the uh that's the mixture uh that we have to sort through i appreciate the time this morning greg uh like i wish jason sullivan or dave uh, dave callahan pardon me wish you good luck in the run run up to see who will be the president for this two-year term and thanks for your time merry christmas to you and yours 
Thank you, sir. Merry Christmas. All the best. All the best Cheers. to you. Bye-bye. Greg Pretty, current FFAW Director, Industrial Retail Offshore, and he wants to be the president. This coming from the FFAW uniform, some clarification on who's eligible to vote. The vote is done by the Industrial Retail Offshore Council and the Inshore Council, so not just Inshore. Thank you for that. That means 60 people, thereabouts, over 60 will get to... Uh, vote in this particular runoff and all voting members are listed with photos and areas and the union form and on their website. There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, Clarence Malloy wants to react to our first caller of the morning. That was Yvonne with the 100th anniversary of Avalon Taxi. We'll hear from Clarence after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Clarence. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. Yes, uh, I was listening this morning there when the lady called about Avalon uh, Taxi and uh, and the farm on the, on Cayman Road. You know, it was very interesting about the you know the Avalon Taxi means been a hundred years, right? So I I taxied myself for over fifty years from uh, the Tapasi area, but. Uh, and when I went to town, when I started, like in uh, in '67, that fall, uh, there was a oh, there was about ten taxis on the southern shore then, right? There were four or five in our area, but I rented. Uh, uh, I stayed on Queen Street, like uh, Gulliver's Cabs. Pierce Gulliver, he had a he had a, a taxi on Queen Street. He used to have four vehicles there, and they had no radios in them. But uh, the, most of his business was walk up, you know, from Water Street and take him home, or or they call him on the phone, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, Dave's father, and uh, I mean there was ABC taxi on the south side. There was there was radio cabs on George Street, and there was another one on Walgreens. Steve, I, I just forget the name, but there was casino and there was a little taxi stand on Queen Street. It was just hardly big enough for for two guys to get into it. I don't know if you remember seeing seeing it there, but uh, I do. But I'm, I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm you thinking. can call casino, get a late night bottle of rum. I know that much. Yeah, and casino. You know, there were some fellas like uh, Vic Stone. He he taxied for years at casino, right? But he did taxi for a while. I got to know him because uh, where I stayed with Gulliver's, he was there for for a short time, like. And uh, Vic, everybody kind of knew Vic around town, and he gave everybody a, br- a break, you know. Vic, like if you if you were coming down the side street somewhere, and Vic was coming along the taxi, brought her up and let you out, you know, and waved his hand, you know, not you know, he didn't have to know you, like you know, but he he was known to uh, to uh, do things for people, you know, and he was very very kind man. But but Pierce Gulliver, now I you know. Uh, and the the four guys that in the people are listening around town, like you know that Walter Tucker was one of the drivers back in the late sixties and seventies, and uh, Norm Pretty, and uh, Clarence Evans, and I know there was a guy who used to taxi drive from to Hutchings. He was from the Cape, up from the Jay Heights somewhere. But there were some of the you know, and he washed the cars every day. Pierce, this one thing, they were spotless, you know, and and. Uh, and Pierce, it was square hand, like I said, all the guys, like he loaned guy two bucks, you know, two bucks back you then, you know. Like, but if he didn't come back with it, you know, he probably had to give him back 250 or I don't know what it was. But, you know, but you, if he see and he wasn't after paying, he crossed the street. <laughs> but out of town taxi was across the street. I mean, they were going, uh, uh, Tom Spinner, Jensen, Leo Wallace, you know, Pointford, and, and Mike Mahoney used to go out to, uh, you know, Avondale out that area, you know, and uh, the Hickeys from St. Mary's O'Donnell's, you know, John Hickey and Allen, and, and like 
Steve Critch was over on Adelaide Street. He used to go to St Mary's and and um, Ed Manville was there on Queen Street. He he went to St Mary's and when I went on to Queen Street back in the 60s, George Stanford's there, he was going to St Vincent's, you know, and find some was over the radio cabs. He went to Trapassi and the Rhines were in Trapassi. The Devereaux were taxiing, you know, and Harold Lawler had a bus in Kappa Hayden. Uh, used to come to town, you know, four or five times a week and they used that a big business and Kenny's in Fermuse had taxis, Albert and Fabe and, and the clothes in Fairyland Junior and and Mike Cody was on the taxi out of Cape Royal and John Shannon and then Walter Power had a bus in Torskov and he used to go to town twice a, twice a day and there was a bus out of Petty Harbour but uh, I know a lady used to tell me she drove with me after the bus gave up when she went to Torskov back in the 60s she could go to Torskov on Walter Power's bus for 50 cents <laughs> Times have changed Clarence, yeah. isn't the taxi service in Trapassi your namesake? Isn't it Malloy's taxi? Uh, yes, but the, like I, re- I, re- I retired, um, you know, I retired a couple of years ago, over mm. two years. So there's no Malloy's taxi anymore. Oh, okay. But Malloy's taxi, like, I was, I done it for fifty two years, and uh, when I started, like it was dirt road, all, all dirt road, then uh, to Bay Bulls, right? It was paved from Bay Bulls to St John's, but uh, and uh, you know there was, uh, I remember I bought a sixty eight Plymouth Fury. I think she was less to less than four thousand dollars. I think around thirty five hundred on the road then, back then, right? And, but there was, um, but there was a lot of a lot of a lot of taxis around town everywhere, and you know, and and trucks. You know, at that time, you know, going to Mary's, like the, there were state body trucks. They were considered to be one of tractor trailers that back then. Like, well, they weren't in our area, but there was different ones had Neil's had a, a truck and the Powers and. You know, and uh, Alf Meyer had a, had a truck in in Agriford, and Dan Green used to taxi at Agriford. So, when they used the trucks uh, for like transportation of goods as a taxi service? Uh, well, uh, as, as goods, yeah, they have, but mostly they, they dealt with fishing stuff and the lighthouses. Okay. And uh, like Trapassi had a fish plant, which was that was a big concern in our area because that was going, we had, had the deep sea draggers, and that was operating like on two ships. And I used to haul a lot of stuff to that. And then the lighthouses. Oh, my uncle Albert, he had he, tr- he trucked out of Portugal Cove, and and a lot of trucks out of, out of uh, and Powers had a truck. Joe Leary had a truck. Different ones had had those trucks then, and they were all haul. Well, I guess they were hauling. They used to haul off all like from the fish plant and passage to the south side in those trucks, you know. But there was. Uh, but the taxi and now there's not a, there's no taxi. You can't get a taxi out of the base now. Hellerns have a a courier service still, right? Like before I gave up, we were for years doing mostly courier, like delivering for Pure Letter and DHL and Loomis and stuff like that. But I also took people. You know, I, I took passengers right from. It's no difference if they were in Bay Bulls. If they phoned me, I picked them up. You know, and took them in the time that type thing, right? But. Uh, Clarence, 52 years is a long time to be at anything. Did it ever cross your mind that there was something other than taxiing you wanted to do, or were you always content and loved the business? Uh, well, uh, the, the way it was with me now, I didn't uh, I didn't stay in school very long. I went fishing with my father. My father was an inshore fisherman in Portugal Cove, and the fish was plenty there. They had traps, right? But uh, you wouldn't get much for your fish back then, so... Uh, in the fall, then you you wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be much to do. So you, sometimes I used to drive a truck for my uncle and 
once the fisher was over, it was only summer months, so I, I decided to get a to get a car and go taxiing. You know, my uncle used to taxi like back before, and he told me when he he worked with the dockyard back in the forties, early forties, and he told me he, he boarded in the West End. And when he'd be walking up Water Street, I don't know if it was, uh, if it was the Dodge then or, or Plymouth or what, but there was a, 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 they had the, the cars, the sales people were there on Water Street, right? And you see this car in the window. When he get his check, he'd go in and pay so much on it. And then he'd go every, every week or two weeks, whenever he got his check, he'd, he'd make a payment on the car. So finally they said, boy, you can take that car now, you know, you have to pay so much on it. So, and he went on the road then back in the, in the 40s. So he, he gave up in the the fifties, but you know, but uh, there was you know a lot of, a lot of. Uh, but then when they started taxiing here in the forties and fifties, they went to time one day, came back to mix, right? But when I started, you went to time and came back the same day, and that's what we were doing then, right? You know, George Dempsey, to Wilson Vincent, and Manville, and all them, you know. Did you make a comfortable living out of Clarence? We we did we did you know like I had uh, we had me and my wife we had. Uh, we had uh, five children, and uh, and uh, you know it was long hours. That was the only thing, you know. Like uh, you leave home seven thirty in the morning, and you never got home very seldom till nine o'clock or eight thirty, and sometimes later winter time, you know. And, but uh, it was six days a week, and I kind of wanted to go fishing. I like fishing was on my mind for years. Like even though I gave it up, and I used to think about getting somebody to go taxi in the summertime and go back fishing but but I never did anyway like you know but uh, but uh, you know the kind of times you wish you had to do something else but I guess when you didn't have a trade and didn't have you know but you know we're we're comfortable you know we're retired <laughs> but, uh, are you living in town or are you up shore no living in Portugal I'm, uh, I'm 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 actually on council here for years you know and oh. the Lions Club and different things you know so uh you know, there's, uh, you know, happy to be here in Portugal Coast House. <laughs> the home of uh, Danny Cleary. <laughs> uh, no. Well, isn't Danny Cleary the hockey player from Portugal Coast South? No. It, or is it from Harbour Grace? Yeah, I think there, there's two stories yeah. on that one. Clarence, I'm out of time, but I appreciate the spin down taxi lane here this morning. <laughs> Well, thanks very much, and I wish everybody a Merry Christmas, especially people here in uh, in in Portugal Coast, out in the southern shore that I'm familiar with. And uh, all the best to you, Paddy, too, and your family. Good to have you on the show. All the best. All right, bye. See, Clarence. Bye-bye. There you go. I mean, I guess if you're in the industry 52 years, you know the names and the rigs and the ins and the outs and the jigs and the reels of the taxi business. That's pretty good stuff. All right, let's take a break. This is a good one. When we come back, Jim's on line number one. He found something on the Internet. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Jim, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Patty, um, I was looking on the Internet there, and if I can find it, I guess anybody can find it, because I'm certainly not technically, uh, you know, up there. But anyway, uh, it's uh, it would concern the uh, flooding coastal erosion in parts of Newfoundland, including what happened on the south coast and Port of Basque. Uh, there's a couple of systems are for sale. Uh, one is from India. It's called uh, Geotube, Geotextile Systems. It's kind of a, a large uh, tube type bag, and uh, you can fill it with what you like, I suppose, sand or or something else. And there's another one, uh, erosion control with trap bag. Uh, they're from the States, and uh, I don't know how much they'd cost, but uh, it seems like you can erect it in the, 
probably a few days, you know, a lot quicker and a lot uh, cheaper, I'm sure, than uh, building some kind of a steel-reinforced concrete thing, which ultimately would resist the sea so much that the sea would, would eventually break it, right? Like, as you know, the sea can conquer anything we man makes, right? So uh, I just, uh, I'd like to pass that on to, uh, to you know, people who might be listening to this, and uh, especially the people who would be concerned uh I'm trying to come up with the money to get systems like this, uh, you know, uh, for you know, for for those uh, erosion control and coastal protection and so on and so forth, right? Probably. Yeah, well, I mean, water is the unstoppable force. That's we, right. We know that to be true. So these are companies based where? Do you happen to know? Well, one is one is in the, one is in India. I didn't I didn't look. I didn't. Uh, I wanted to get on. I didn't. Uh, you know, uh, anybody could look it up. But it's uh, erosion control with trap bag. If you type that in, you'd probably come right to it on the on the YouTube. Yeah. And uh, right next to it, I think, is uh, GeoTube Geotextile Systems. I know they're in India. So, uh, but anyway, uh, it's great. You know, you just get a bunch of men. You 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 have to have a a power shovel, you know, steam shovel used to call it power shovel, but you uh, you dig out a trench uh, uh, on the beach uh, up at the kind of high water mark, I guess, and you uh, you know you uh, you put these bags there. The bags are they're separate cells, but they're joined together, and uh, and you uh, reinforce them with uh, wood and metal rods and wood and so on, and uh, they stand upright. I think about four four or five feet. And you fill them with, you can fill them, I believe, with sand or crushed stone or even poured concrete. Uh, but anyway, uh, and there's about what the whole idea is, they mightn't, uh, depends on how high the water gets now, you know, if the water gets too high. But they will apparently, um, uh, they will uh, divert, they kind of divert the water to go along the shore. And uh, they do protect some of the fill and the natural land in behind in behind the barrier, right? And uh, the one from India, that has... Uh, uh, this sort of tubes, uh, they uh, uh, the, the, where the tubes dip down, you know, in between each tube, uh, that allows some kind of natural uh, water to flow in and out. But uh, there's enough uh, protection to, to keep the existing material in behind it, you know, or most of it anyway. So I, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I just, as we were speaking, I just put trap bag into my Google search, and yeah. I came up with trapbag.com. It's actually a company based in the United States, Fort That's Myers, right. Florida, and goes on, there's a picture on the homepage. It looks like your traditional sand bag, That's except it has right. its own form, and there's it looks like a, a row on the bottom with another right. berm-type setup throughout, and exactly. then another stack of them on top, yeah? Yeah, you have a bunch of men, and they, they fill them with, there's a, there's a particular order uh, you've got to fill them, you know, uh, but it tells you that, it's all told, you know. Uh, and uh, but I imagine they'd be a lot cheaper than and you need you don't really need skilled labor uh, to help put them up. You just need a, a skilled person who's a, a you know technical person or who an engineer or something to uh, direct the laborers to uh, erect them and to dig the hole and to fill them and so on in the right order and reinforce them before that, of course, and uh, so on. And then uh, once they're there, you know, I don't know how long. I don't know if they're meant to be temporary or 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 long term, but uh, like you say, uh, when man tries to resist directly, you know, with uh, uh, hard material like steel and concrete, uh, the sea tends to smash them more. The sea will just uh, come in stronger and smash them eventually, right? Whereas uh, something that gives, something that gives like the wind, like a tree when it bends with the wind, it probably won't crack off. The same way these softer materials, they... Uh, 
They, uh, see, you only want to slow down the waves so that they don't come in too far and hit too hard, right? If you can slow the waves down and divert them a bit and reduce their 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 power, their hitting power, then uh, you know that's that's going to help. Uh, it might save that bit of shore, right? It goes on to talk about applications include erosion control, the mining mining industry, flood protection, mudslides, right. spills, coffer dams, right. river stabilization, right. on and on and on it goes. Right. Uh, appreciate this this morning, Jim. Interesting stuff. No, but I mean, you know, I figure that's a possible and a possible cheaper solution to uh, flooding around Newfoundland, you know? Could very well be, and I and don't know. Soil erosion. Yeah, I'm not so even, sure. Even rock erosion. Even rock erosion. Well, this is meant for uh, the ones you see here, the pictures you see here are more like for uh, soil-type shores, right? But I don't know if it would work on a rocky-type shore. Uh, I don't know. It could, uh, But, you know, the engineers could figure that out could ask the company, see what they think, and then the engineers we have here, they could, I'm sure the, God, the government or the civilian engineers could fi- figure those things out, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know what's being considered, whether it be the uh, breakwater in Trapassi or for to continue, uh, pardon me, erosion control and different yeah. coastal communities, but uh, I'm glad you told me about it this morning. I'll have another look at it after the show. Anyway, I think it's certainly worth considering to save uh, possible lives and certainly millions of dollars in property. And having to have people move and lose all their stuff and everything, you know what I mean? Absolutely right. I'm glad you called. Okay, good enough. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's hard to know what's being considered, but, you know, when we talk about these types of plays for how we rebuild, where we rebuild, municipalities that are out there considering coastal erosion and climate change plans, I don't know if anyone has talked about any of this stuff, but it's... uh, it's interesting. I want to have another look before the day is over. And someone just sent me some Nuremberg Court stuff. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Dave Callahan is there. He wants to talk about the fact he's also running for the FFAW presidency, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Our third and two days, vires for the FFAW presidency. We've spoken to Jason Sullivan. We've spoken to Greg Pretty. Now we'll speak with Dave Callahan on two. Dave, you're on the air. Dave? <laughs> he waited all that time, then the call drops. You want to get Dave back here? So quickly, what we'll do is we'll go to line number one. Good morning, Larry. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Oh, yes, sir. I just wanted to add to the, the, the fact of the Avalon Taxi. Uh, I linked a buddy from up the shore. He was hawking. <laughs> up the shore, twang, right? Yeah, love it. Yeah, but Devlin Taxi, I'm down here in Pender's Garage or in King's Road. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and uh, I used to serve service Kevin Dillon's cars for years, right? Just to add to the story, right? And uh, But what I wanted to say was he always drove like Lincolns and New Yorkers and top-end cars. Did you also service those or just the cabs? No, that was the cabs. They oh, the cabs were those cars. high-end cars? Oh, wow, how about that? Yeah, yeah. He didn't drive, like, junky cars, you know. <laughs> I just wanted that to that show on his ass. I love it. So how long were you down to Penders? Oh, geez, I'm down. Oh, sorry. I'm down here, I don't know, 20 years, right? Okay. But when I was in the body shop, I used to work on them, too, right? But there were always, like, classy cars. That's the thing with Dillon, right? He always had classy cars. Well, and certainly a proud day for the family now coming up. What? A pretty proud day for the family coming up here now with all the years they spent in the taxi business. Yes, I know. I heard. That's what I heard. That's why I called in, right? Yeah, I'm glad you did. 
So I just wanted to add to that because, like, they didn't just, like, roll with all cheap cars. They always had, like, classic cars, right? It sounds like... Dylan would come in here and he would have shirt and tie on, like, like in the old days, right? And uh, stuff like that, right? But... Uh, so, obviously, as someone in the business, not only working on the high-end cars that were part of the Avalon fleet, but do you have any classic cars or working on them yourself? Well, I do have classic cars, yeah. But I, 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 use, I used to appreciate, like, Kevin Dillon because he, he, he never... His father, his grandfather, used to roll with, like, classic cars, right? Yeah, nice. Love it. But that's the, that's the thing with that taxi stand, right? They were down by the courthouse, right? Yeah, once I... Uh, I figured it out talking with Yvonne. So just at the bottom of the courthouse steps right up against Aaron's pub. Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. Right in the corner. Yeah. Well, I appreciate adding, adding to the taxi conversation today because I've really enjoyed these calls, to be honest. I know, but I, I just appreciated her calling in about it. I didn't know there was an anniversary for it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 12 noon right, on uh, Christmas Eve down at the old cab stand. They're going to raise a jar for Dad. Yes, I know. Well, I didn't know the man, but I remember he cares, right? Good to have you on, Larry. Appreciate the time. All right, sir. Thank you. Merry Christmas, sir. Merry Christmas to you as well. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Here you go. The high-end cars, the New Yorkers and the like. Cool. Let's see if we can rejoin Dave Callahan on, too. Dave, you're on the air. I think I'm here this time, buddy. <laughs> After all that time, bing, down it goes. Okay, you're back. Technical difficulty. <laughs> all right, so you've heard from Jason Sullivan, and you've heard from uh, Greg Pretty this morning. Where do you come down on it, whether it be the eligibility to vote or vision for the union or why you even running? Well, I guess the reason that I'm running is because I've always had, you know, I've been close to the fishery and been, I'm involved in the fishery, and I see a lot of the vagrancies that exist there in, in terms of, uh, let's say, the Newfoundland fishery moving forward. There are a lot more issues than what generally become the popular thing that you hear about, such as I heard Mr. Pretty mention that there's going to be the upcoming negotiation of crab and shrimp prices and whatever. Well, that's an ongoing and annual thing. That's something that's always led to a, a bit of division, and we've always wondered in Newfoundland if we were being treated fairly under the everything from the you know the pricing regimes to the, the, the ways that the prices were <clears throat> negotiated, who was involved with it. But more so, I, I, I throughout this process, I've learned why most people don't have a great deal of respect for the FFAW. Some, some do, but there's not a lot of, I wouldn't call it a carte blanche support for the FFAW, nor the way they operate. And, and of course, this election procedure and the rules in the Constitution that allow it to happen uh, somewhat should be revisited as far as I'm concerned because I'll give you an example. This is a very, uh, let's say, advantageous time to anybody that's in the system to be involved in the election of a, of a new president. We're leading up on Christmas. Nomination calls were throughout the Christmas season. The election is going to be shortly into the new year. And even like as yesterday Mr. Sullivan alluded to, and I'll bring up again, we were not able to get a list of the 60 eligible voters that will be voting to choose the next president. Their names exist and who they are, but then it's left to you. And then we were told by the union that we would have to 
go out and basically kind of creep these people on Facebook or something, I suppose. Now, people are getting ready for Christmas, family coming home, all this type of thing. I'm supposed to go out and try to get the attention of somebody to be able to, to give them a, a few points or a few planks in my platform to run on at a very, I would call, disadvantageous time. Uh, I'd be a pain in their butt. So I'm actually reaching out to those 60 people from the offshore council, the industrial council, and the executive. If you want to truly see change in this union, as was alluded to by Mr. Pretty, leaders of the past had found themselves not landing great favor with the membership. They worked hard, he said, and the membership didn't like them. Well, it's not that they didn't like the individual. The people in the FFAW didn't like the amount of control that existed over the over the helm, over as you're saying, over the bridge, and the and the wheelhouse people being endorsed by the union because you're there so long, you're in the union so long. Basically, he alluded to the fact that in the past leaders had not had the right amount of respect that they should have. Actually, what he's trying to do now, or what would be happening now, would be repeating the exact same process. I could understand if the 60 people involved in the offshore council, the inshore council, and those involved in the vote, let's say there was only three or four months left till the general election or whatever, and they'd covered the position that way, that's great. History hasn't told that story. They generally vacate the seat, they promote who they want next, and they always get in. Well, that... I'll object to the entire process. I would have to change from within, and I would make it fair for every member of this union should I get in there. It would be one of the key things that I would look at first. The other thing that I heard Mr. Pretty allude to that I really hope does not get promoted by him nor, nor whoever takes over the head seat of this union, he had mentioned that this union had to get more militant. No, it certainly should not. It should get more public. It should certainly get more boisterous and probably do what they can through whatever process to take a stronger position in promoting its members, but not militant. That is going to serve nobody nothing. I mean, the days of, 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 of violence and, and militants in, in trying to drive any form of labor movement are no longer respected, no longer needed in our society. There are other ways. You can look at the rules that exist. You can look at litigations, whatever case it may be, and object in different fashions, but not in a militant way. Yeah, and I don't know exactly what he means by militant. Maybe I should have followed up with what do you mean by that. But, I mean, the union is absolutely an important labor organization in this province for Certainly. every obvious reason that you can think of. Yep. So, how before I have run out of time and uh, get to Cindy, how are you planning on getting to the 60-plus members directly? It's one thing to use this program to do it. Of course, this will be your last opportunity this year. But how do you plan on getting to them to hear your message and curry their uh, vote? I really, I've been asking around for a list. I've got a list of the people that are sitting on, like, the offshore industrial board, the executive, and the inshore councils. Um, I guess by searching Facebook or Twitter or whatever, because, like, most today, everybody carries a cell phone, and you can't go to the phone book and look up a cell phone number. But I would encourage anybody out there that does have a vote, 
maybe you would like the opportunity to pick my brain to see exactly where I sit on most of the issues. One of the biggest issues I think facing this union now is to get new entrants into it because like farming, it's getting to the point where it's much difficult now to get people into that boat. The younger people aren't really, you know, uh, so inclined or whatever the case may be. Maybe there's got to be some things that change to, to, to encourage new entrants into this industry. It's a very valuable one to our province. Right now you have 14,000 members in this union, most of which are made up of people of anywhere from about 40 years to about 65 years, uh, that you know demographic. That's got to change. We need new entrants. I just did a level one course not very long ago, and there were people there that were returning, having left the fishery. Now they got to get recertified or whatever, but they're going back to fish with their sons or, or, or their brothers or whatever the case may be who can't crew their boats. Well, these are things that can change if the desire is there to change it. And these 60 people that are out there, if I could, I'll leave my my number or something with Dave or whatever. I don't know what to do there. Yeah, we have your number. If they want it, we can give it to them. Yes, if they want it, they can certainly get a hold of you <coughs> and get my number. I would welcome the idea to be not only questioned, but to gain your confidence that, you know, I was the right fellow for the job with the right intentions. And I certainly don't have any skeletons in the closet as far as this is concerned. So time for change? Well, I'd like to be that change. I appreciate the time, Dave. Good luck with it. Thank you very much, Patty. And to everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And uh, I'll be out and, and I'll be burning the pavement shortly to uh, gain your confidence and see if I can't get in that and, and, and make some difference in the FFAW. Thanks for this. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Will I take Cindy here before the break, Dave? Yes, let's go line three. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, you? Oh, I've been better, but I'm going to tell you a story now. Well, you're talking about all these airlines. Well, the was just as bad. They're beyond the best ship. We were stuck in Hamilton, Ontario, and they did not give us not one cent our flight was supposed to fly out on the 15th at 6.30 a.m. Uh, we boarded the flight. Uh, we were on the flight forever. It was past 6.30 before they even told us that we were delayed due to a mechanical problem in the lavatory. So that was fine. And then another while later, they come back on. We're still delayed due to the lavatory is flooding the plane. And... Transport Canada does not allow them to fly with two labs only. So a little while after they come back on, no, we're going to go. It's okay with Transport Canada. We can go with two. Five minutes later, they come back on. Oh, cancel flight due to weather. Well, our flight was due to leave at 6.30. The weather never hit till 10 after 8. And they called it a cancellation due to weather. And there was people stuck in the airport until the next night, we finally got home. I got home in my house 4 o'clock Saturday morning, and we were due in on Thursday. And so no compensation of any sort? Not a cent, not even a bottle of water. I took a young fella under our wing, because it was myself and my older son, and he had been talking to him. The young fella never had nowhere to go, never had no money, no nothing. So we took him with us. And there was a lot of other people in the same circumstances. And there was people that reached out and helped out people that had nowhere to go, people that did live in Hamilton but was coming to Newfoundland. But there was people that took strangers into their home with them because of this. And the hotels all around were full. There was people who had to go 20 minutes by taxi to get a hotel. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole Passenger Bill of Rights is full of holes. It's completely well, full of holes. Even, they won't even give us a phone number. you got to talk to them on Messenger. They'll only talk back and forth on Messenger. I said, no, I want to talk to somebody live. Oh, we can't call out or you can't call in. I said, what kind of service is this? I waited two weeks for them to get back to me to begin with. Yeah, it must be a nice way to operate a business. So I'm sorry we can't talk to you. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry it happened. I paid a fortune. It's supposed to be a cheaper flight. No, by Air Canada would have been a heck of a lot cheaper because it cost me a fortune. We had to pay for all of our luggage. We had to pay for the flight. We had to pay for hotels. We had to pay for rental vehicles. Sounds like a bit of a nightmare. I'm sorry that it happened to you, Cindy, but it's a bit of fair warning for others. Sometimes the cut-rate airlines, it's a feel-good until something goes wrong, then it's even worse than flying with the so-called major carriers. Exactly, and they're like, they're pinning it on weather. Well, no, if you look at the weather, that didn't start till 10 after 8, and we were due to leave at 6.30 in the morning. Right. But they didn't want to compensate anybody, so they called it weather cancellation. How could they do that when the flight was due to be out of there at 6.30 and it was perfect out? Because they think they can get away with it, basically. Yeah. And I guess they did. I'm sorry that it happened, Cindy. I appreciate your time. Hopefully you have a good holiday season despite it. Patty, one quick thing, please, to everybody, especially seniors out there, you get anything telling you that you owe $1.99 or two ninety nine, whatever the fact may be, for your parcel to be delivered or for your phone or whatever, it's all scams that are going on out there. We are at a bank right now because my mother was compromised. She got an, a new card last week, and then yesterday we got home, she had another new card, and here uh, she opened the card, and she opened her account to look to see if it was the same number. The card had been used already, and she never even activate, activated it. Oh, my. Too much of that going now, on, too. Thousands of dollars. So, like, tell people, okay. please, please be careful. And we try to do that repeatedly because I hear these stories far too often. Cindy, take good yeah. care. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a great Christmas. You, you too. and everybody else out there. Very same to you, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to five. Mike, you're on the air. <clears throat> good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, I sent you some emails there on the commissioner's, privacy commissioner's report on uh, money that uh, I was trying to find out how much the uh, Compass Group were being paid from Eastern Health. Yep. And uh, there was some win there, and there was some lose. I'm not sure exactly what yet. But, you know, this is not right that here the Eastern Health is entering into what's called a vested partnership with a foreign country, uh, a company from a foreign country, the space in a foreign country. They're giving them all of the private inf- information of Eastern Health. They've got access to everything that Eastern Health got. They're operating under Eastern Health uh, premises. The employees, they got 45 employees there and growing every day because they've got the right to hire only uh, Compass employees. We're paying everything. They've got nothing invested into Newfoundland. They're getting the cash from all the tills in the uh, restaurants and cafeterias and everything else every day. So they got absolutely not one cent invested in Newfoundland or in anything. But they're taking out 
huge profits under this vested partnership agreement, to which the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are not entitled to know how much it is, and it is involving hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, if Hydro went and hired a company that and signed a contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars and nobody were allowed to know anything about it, uh, there'd be an uproar. But this stuff is being done undercover and stuff is hidden from the people of Newfoundland and Labrador as regards to the actual facts of what's going on. Now, I put in a request that back a number of years ago, because I knew about the you know, huge amounts of money being wasted and how we were being conned, that I put in a request to for a review of this contract, uh, the previous one, and I put it into the Auditor General's office. Now, there was a review done by the uh, Eastern Health, and the Auditor General was in onto it with the thing. It was never released. I could not even find out until this week that it was even actually done, confirmation that it was done. But anyway, I do have confirmation everything that it was done. It went to, as far as I know, the House of Assembly, and the House of Assembly has not released this, this, uh, these documents or this review, either from the uh, health uh, care or from the Auditor uh, General's office. So, as far as I'm concerned, Dr. Hagee was supposed to release this back two years ago, three years ago now, when COVID started. It was not done. Now they're trying to get it, saying that it was going to hurt that company if we don't get it. But it has nothing to do with that company of, uh, as regards to the review because it was done before the previous, before this contract that's in effect now. And uh, there's no reason why it's not being released other than they've got something to hide. And they do have stuff to, hidden too. Now, this contract gives them the right to, you know, uh, basically invest nothing, not one dime. We pay for everything, and they make enormous profits to send it out of the country. Understood. Uh, Simply because we're five seconds from noon, I will leave it at that today, but appreciate the time uh, all through the year and the information via email. Mike, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. We are out of time, but we will indeed pick up this conversation tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. It's the last show of the year. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.